came to me in a dream last night. You were standing in a brilliant light. One minute here, but the next you were gone. I thought you could stay, but I was so wrong. The end is here. The game is over. No more pretending. No more. No more. The end is here. The end is here. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul McGeddon, Maestro, you're sitting straight for and all we can rely on is Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. Oh, hold on, that's, uh, that's the wrong Armageddon, I forgot about it. Now, we're here to look at the first wrestling pay-per-view titled Armageddon, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot more sense for this series. This is Armageddon 1999, and I'll be honest with you, a, a wrestling pay-per-view with the theme song, The End Is Here is uh, probably the best summation for 2020 right now and after everything that's been going on. <laughs> I am, of course, your usual host, Scott McLeod, joined uh, on this latest installment of the Retro Series as we look at Armageddon 1999 by another special guest. And uh, I must say, I am very much looking forward to this podcast because this guest host is another person who I met through my time at Eat, Eat Suplex Retreats and if you are also a listener over there, you'll know that me and this man have a, a shaky past. We were, <laughs> we were friends, then he betrayed me, we became friends again, then I betrayed him, we created one of the greatest podcasts known to man, he left, mm-hmm. abandoned it, and now he's come back, and now he's here joining me on this podcast. He, ho- he also hosts a, a film podcast called First Time Films, despite the fact he's never watched Talk Rod. <laughs> but when it comes to podcasting, he may well and truly be the GOAT, as David Campbell. Well, Scott, thank you very much for that that great introduction. But I have to go back to Armageddon, man. That's my, my guilty pleasure film, is Armageddon. Any movie which features Steven Tyler singing while his daughter has sexy playtime with Ben Affleck <laughs> uh, using animal crackers, is a, that's a movie that I can get behind, man. <laughs> uh. Uh, well, I, mean, I was thinking about the film earlier on when I thought of that intro, and I remembered Michael Clark Duncan's in it. And I remember it's one of those random ones where, like, I was gutted when he when he died because my my dad had started watching the show. He was a part right before he died that got cancelled after one season. It was called The Finder. It was an okay show, but he was good in it. And then I remember hearing they got cancelled, and shortly after hearing that he died, I was like, "Fucking hell, I fucking broke my heart for a while." No, I know, man. It's one of those celebrity deaths that hit you. Like, even this week, I woke up to the 
the sad news about Chadwick Boseman and shed a tear. It's just there's some people that, that have an impact on you personally. You're talking with Michael Clark Duncan. And then the likes of Chadwick Boseman, man, like the sort of icon, you know, for society and the things he did and the social change that came from Black Panther as a film and by proxy his performance in it, you know, and, you know, I can feel that, man. I can feel that, especially talking about that this week, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, David, obviously, listeners of Rogue Pines, you may not be familiar with you. You are a busy man in your own right. You know, you recently made the return to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retreats. But you're also, as well as uh, first-time films, I believe you also do full-time football and first-time TV as well. Yeah, well, basically, first-time films, I started when I was in Boston in 2018, and it's it's grown from there. We've recently, you know, increased our panel uh, over that first-time films. I'm finally accepting that I can't do everything, you know, on my own. Um, always, as you say, I'm always too busy a guy, but I produce full-time football. The boys on there would not like my opinion on it, uh, <laughs> so I stay, off, I stay off that show. And FTTV as well, uh, which is hosted by my co-founder over at FT, uh, Mr. Jack Higgins. So, all good stuff if you want to go and check it out. Uh, listen to me dump on Forrest Gump regularly, uh, which is a film I just cannot get behind. I don't get it. But I appreciate well, those people who are big fans of it. Well, 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 well. You can't just be starting off the podcast just throwing that out there. <laughs> I know. I know it's a controversial opinion, mate. It's just, you know, everyone, I think everyone has that film that everyone else seems to like. And they just, for whatever reason, every single time I've went to go and watch Forrest Gump, I've just been like, Nah, nah, just just don't get it, man. But I don't want to make the listeners of Rogue Opinion podcast uh, hate me right off the bat. Uh, people over at ESSR hate me enough, you know. So uh, <laughs> I'll just I'll put that opinion in the bin for now. <laughs> well, I was gonna say you're starting starting off with some rogue opinions of your own, so you're fitting in very well. <laughs> I do love that Forrest Gump does seem to be one of the go-to ones when people have a controversial opinion about a film that's well loved. It's always Forrest Gump that seems to be the go-to one. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad I'm not alone then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also through your work in the podcast, you've arranged some really good charity nights. I remember you hosted a, a gauntlet-style quiz for yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> oh, which, because I, I went there with the thing like, I've not watched all six original movies they start to finish in years. I'll go mm. along, I'll have a couple, I'll maybe last a couple of rounds Fucking hell, I nearly went the full distance and yeah. I was very proud of myself. You know, that's the thing with these charity events, obviously. First and foremost, I love um, like helping out these these causes because they are near and dear to not only my heart, um, but also a lot of the guys involved in the podcast are affected by the conditions that we raise money for. So it is personal to us, but I love the stories that develop on, on these nights, whether it's the tournaments or whether it's the, the Star Wars Gauntlet we did. And you were the biggest story of that, man. I don't think there was anyone who wasn't rooting for you to win it by the end. You know, it was heartbreak when, when you got knocked off that table. I do need to ask, do you still have your, your Darth Vader mug from that night? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I do. And nice. I still have those those checkered socks. I nice. also won this, but I mean, honestly, some of the most comfy socks I've ever worn. Right, and man. Then I, then I looked up like, how much it costs to get some more pairs, and I'm just like, nah, I'll stick with the one pair. They'll, they'll do me for a while. <laughs> they'll do until we, until you get holes in them, then you might make the investment. Yeah. <laughs> What's funny is that I didn't have any like sort of carrier bag or anything to uh, discreetly put away the size of this giant mug you gave me. So I'm just walking down Sucky Hall Street with this one... <laughs> Massive Darth Vader head-shaped mug, which 
it's really hard to explain all the while gri- gri- gripping to it with both hands with the fear that I would somehow just drop it and the whole thing would shatter. And then what's funny is you also hosted a, a FIFA tournament for charity as well. Well, and I was I, that up. <laughs> yeah, well, it's worth mentioning because like, as well as I did with Star Wars, I knew I was going to be equally bad at, at FIFA. I got mm. knocked at 11-1. In the first yeah. round, and I didn't even score that one goal. The guy scored an own goal. <laughs> you were up against the man. If it helps you, he's made the semi-final of that tournament two years in a row now. So there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. You know what I mean? You did it for the charity, and I appreciate that. I do have to say, though, Scott, you bring up quizzing, and I just think you're, you doubted yourself with the Star Wars quiz, but it's something you're naturally good at, and it is something I've been jealous of at ESD. Oh, we've got, I think, a quiz showdown coming up up there. And I have to say, I really want to to show myself in these quizzes now because I feel I haven't actually performed anywhere near as good as I can with them. So I'm just giving you warning now that I'm ready to come and play a quiz showdown for you when that happens. Well, I think uh, people who listen to Rogue Opinions know I, I do love a quiz as well. I think I'm currently 4-0 in quizzes over here. Quiz showdown. Uh, that sorry, is insane. That's insanity. Not, not all of them are just wrestling based, they're just a general knowledge one. But yeah. it does seem to be a reoccurring thing that whenever the wrestling questions come around, that gives me a little bit of a lead. Mm. I'm, I'm yeah. currently for We're trying to arrange another quiz, me and Jimmy from this podcast, uh, if mm. me, him, and Nathan, who's putting it together, can, uh, can get together. I've got a streak going here. I'm like the Undertaker now over here. I need to defend <laughs> it with everything I've got. Do you know what you should do? Just briefly talking about films, I think I sent in, um, I sent over to you. It's Kevin Smith versus Chris Jericho, right? In the movie trivia showdown, which is a show I love on YouTube. You should watch that, Scott. But also try and play along, right? See if you would beat them, because I'm very curious to see how you would hold up in that competition. Oh, actually, I remember a while back you you did a couple of like lockdown sale quizzes mm-hmm. uh, on your podcast. I, I played along there. The film one, I think I did well at. When I was listening to your TV one, the reality show round, if I was on that, that would have been around the fucking Scarford, maybe, because the first three rounds before that, I thought, I know that one, I know that one. And uh, <laughs> came to the reality TV, and I'm like, yeah. well, it, it doesn't help I try to avoid reality TV like the Blake. Yeah. So, there's that. Yeah. Well, I'm the same as you. I think the only reality TV show I watch, if you can call it that, is um, there's this show called Encore on Disney+. Plus. Um, and it basically gets like high school groups back together. So the high school play they performed, like say they performed Greece in 1979, they get the original cast back together to do it one more time, and they have like five yeah. days to rehearse. And I'll I know it's like cheesy reality TV, but it's just there's something about it, man. I just can't help but keep watching. It just makes me smile. You know what I mean? I get you. I mean, there's no judgment here, but you know. <laughs> We've been getting to know you a little bit as uh, my co-host for this particular episode, uh, David. I want to ask you about in regards to wrestling. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm not mistaken, much like Jack, you would have started watching wrestling around mid two thousands, around maybe two thousand six. Is that two thousand six? Is totally right. I think um, I've told the story a couple of times. The first segment that I ever watched was Mark Henry's funeral for the Undertaker's streak on the lead up to WrestleMania twenty two. Uh, I just happened, I'd played the Smackdown games with a couple of my pals before that, and I loved playing as Kevin Nash uh, in those games. I don't know why. Uh, there was something about Kevin Nash. I was just like, this guy's cool. <laughs> and turns out, turns out he was. Big Daddy cool. Um, but I remember just looking at Mark Henry and thinking, 
God, this guy's a bit terrifying, isn't it? Like, I was so convinced, like, he was going to beat The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Little did I know that there was no chance of that happening, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> but I was hooked ever since that moment. My granda, we didn't have Sky, so my granda started recording uh, SmackDown uh, and Raw on VHS tapes for me. Like, he would buy pay-per-views, and I remember crying because my favourite wrestler throughout those first couple of months of watching it was Trish Stratus, easily. Like, I say it to this day, but I genuinely love Trish Stratus because I thought... She's like this great champion, you know, she had to deal with a stalker. It was right in the Mickey James angle. And when she retired at Unforgiven, man, I was my wee guy self. I was like sobbing. I was like, no, don't go. Like that was heartbreaking, man. Absolutely heartbreaking. But yeah, that's the that was the start of my wrestling fan journey. And I've kept going ever since, all the way to 2020, 14 years later. <laughs> and uh, obviously you've been happy when Trish's, whenever Trish's came back for those few appearances she's been making. Last few years, uh, your love of Trish Stratus is known over at ESSR. Yeah, totally. And that was the, the happiest one because the Evolution Tag Team match was good just to see her back. But the Charlotte match at SummerSlam for me like silenced any of this narrative about oh, Trish wouldn't be able to hang with the current day talent. talent. And I, I sincerely think that's, that's all the BS, man. Because that match against Charlotte, sure, she's in there with Charlotte, who is the best women wrestler on the planet, perhaps of all time. Perhaps she's a better wrestler than Trish. But Trish really held her own in that match, man. And there's, for me, there's no more important woman in the history of women's wrestling than the landmark that Trish made. Of course, with Lita, because they're paired together. But Trish was the cornerstone of that division for such a long time. And I just, I just think, in my opinion, there's no more important woman in wrestling history than, than Trish Stratus. Uh, very good point, well made, and it's really hard to argue with that. I, I do remember like her retirement in 2006. I remember late 06, start 07, maybe where I kind of just dropped off from wrestling. Mm-hmm. No, for like any particular reason. I just maybe one day just forgot it was on, and as I was at that time, I just I kept like finding a new thing I was into every now and then. It took me a couple of years to work my way back to wrestling, but yeah, the last pay per views I remember watching was Unforgiven 06 because more often than not. I would just tape the pay-per-views if they were on Sky Sports. Yeah. Because uh, I wouldn't really watch them they were, if they were on box office. And more often that, I would watch SmackDown, but I'd just catch the highlights of Raw with, like, Todd Grisham hosting Bottom Line. So yeah. There's a, there's a bit of a reference there. What a show. And, and I remember not knowing anything about the retirement angle with regards to Trish and the lead into this pay-per-view, and then you're watching the promo mm-hmm. uh, before, and Carlito's talking to her about, oh, I hear you're retiring after I'm forgiven. I'm just sitting there, just, like, all confused. It's like, what, what? Like, yeah. cause just for me, it was one of the more consistent parts of the women's division at that time, especially in the 2000s. And then hearing the, oh yeah, Trish is leaving, like, what? Yeah. Yeah, and it did, it, it, it undisputably uh, left a hole in the women's division. Trish leaving, then Lita left at Survivor Series just after that. And you had, I'm not saying there weren't talented wrestlers there, like you had the likes of Mickey James, you had the likes of Beth Phoenix on the rise. Um, but WWE's um, main concern at that time after that was we want to hire models, you know, we want to have these pin-up girls and some of them ended up being really talented wrestlers in the end, I'm going to say it said it before, I'll say it again, Nikki Bella remains to this day one of the most underrated talents the women's division ever had because of her progression Um, but it was a different kettle of fish when you look at the standard that Trish and Lita had brought the women's division to in 2006 compared to where it was even three or four years after they left it was it was bad times and I think it's a testament to how good Trish was 
that when she left, the division basically crumbled for a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, trust me, we talk about women's crumbling women's divisions. There's a match later on in this show I have things to, <laughs> to say. Definitely. Uh, uh, but we will dive into the show in a bit. Uh, part of the reason I, I thought it would be good to have you on is me and you hosted a show for a while on Easter called Saturday Draft Live. Mm-hmm. Uh, all about basically recapping the fantasy draft that me and the, us and the guys over there were a part of and basically looking at it as if we were actually a sports analyst show. And yes. then it just evolves into basically trash talking everybody, bigging up their own teams. <laughs> and I just I love doing it. And I'm, so I, I'm, the idea of us getting to do a podcast is us two again for the first time since uh, since we're about WrestleMania. Really, this year we that weekend we recorded a podcast, and I think that's the last time it's just been us recording something. So I'll, and I've, I've missed it to be honest with you. It's good because on ESSR, you know me, like I like to. I like to throw in elements of kayfabe in there, you know what I mean, with, with <laughs> ESSR and the promotion of my movie even over my Instagram, if anyone's seen that, Jesus. Like, I do, I do like to sort of play a part sometimes, but it's good to be able to come on here speak a bit frankly and plainly. Like, with Saturday Draft Live, that was the... When I left ESSR, it wasn't an easy decision. The decision was made due to a lot of stress at that time, just with uni and not knowing how I was going to get my film made and filmed and stuff like that. And then this whole idea, I think, of try to find a job in the pandemic. It was, I knew it was going to be tough times, you know what I mean? But Saturday Draft Live was always the question mark that held me back from making the decision, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm so happy to be back at ESSR. And more importantly, I'm happy to see where you've taken Saturday Draft Live since I left because it's now going on to ESSR's main feed. When we started it, it was only in the Patreon, uh, behind the paywall, not as many people being able to listen to it. So I, I'm i so proud of the show and I'm so proud of you as my co-host to have taken it to that stage and taken the show to new heights that I couldn't have taken them to. So to be able to come on this show, chat with you one on one again, like it's it's really good, man. Reminds me of those those old times, the first twenty or so episodes of Saturday Draft Live. You know what I mean? Uh, I I do. I get what you're, exactly what you're saying. Uh, now being taken over by myself, our good friend David Hockney and uh, Jack Graham, who people will remember from the last two weeks of yeah. this podcast. He was he was a great help uh, coming in and doing the show with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also part of the reason I wanted to get you in and do it is. Back in the SSR, uh, my brother Ross did some like old retro reviews from like the start of two thousand, mm. and he got on a couple of what, uh, ones. And obviously, they weren't really a couple. They were a few years before you started watching. And I remember listening to it, and I like, I really like hear like your new year and you having to look at these reviews with like very little context. Yes, and this so was thought, a hard one, by the way. For that, <laughs> this was a really. I was so confused at times as to what was going on, but we'll get into that when specific things come up. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to provide context. Having to watch the SmackDown, and actually, also I watched the Raws as part of this as well. Mm-hmm. So I'll do my best to provide the context. Even to me, someone who's been watching every bit of Raw and SmackDown leading up to this, I'm still watching and playing it hard watching the show, thinking, "How the fuck did we end up here?" Tell <laughs> <laughs> that. 2000, a year where it seemed like the WAF could do no wrong. It's just right there on the precipice. We just need to get <laughs> to Armageddon to get to there. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I don't mean to come on and bash the show immediately, but uh, there was a lot in the show I really did enjoy, and we'll get into that. But then I went, there was some of it, man, where I was just like, 
Oh, the in-ring action especially has improved leaps and bounds since 1999 in WWE. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took place on the 12th of December 1999 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, from one of the worst-titled arenas I've ever heard, the National Car Rental Center. Out <laughs> of a crowd of 17,000 people. I mean, it's up there with one of the worst. I think the worst is still has to be in New Orleans when they had the Smoothie King Center where they also oh, like take over New Orleans and shit like that. It's like Livingston uh, is I think Livingston's football stadium's the Tony Macaroni Arena. Um <laughs> so they call that the spaghetti head. Uh, <laughs> which I find absolutely hilarious. Uh it's a very somber introduction from for this pay per view. It's all centered around the Triple H Vincent Man match that's main eventing this show. That's a perfectly normal sentence to read out loud. <laughs> and it's it's all somber, all black and white. These quotes going up like, if you don't believe in anything, you'll fall for anything or something like that. Mm. And like, talking about how much Vince cares for his daughter is just as apparently as equal to how much Triple H cares about being WWF champion. Oh, sorry, here, mm. I've actually got it written down in my notes here. If you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. That's the big quote here. And yeah. like, Putting Stephanie and the title up against each other is either, is, I mean, either one of two things. One, either Triple H values the WF title way, way too much, or Vince doesn't value his daughter nearly enough. I'd like to think it's the former. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a hard relationship to get to get down on paper. Um, because... Obviously, you're going to go into that match more deeply later on. But just from the storyline leading up to it, I'm just looking and I'm like, there's so many moving pieces here. What I didn't understand was why did Vince cost Triple H the title in the first place? Did that come before or after Triple H married Stephanie? Like, were they already fuming before all that went down? No, that that came before. So they were already building the army in before the the wedding angle. Right. Like, I'll, I'll try to break it down when we get to the, the main event. This is right. also, I should mention, the first uh, big pay-per-view in almost two or three years that has not featured Stone Cold Steve Austin in any capacity mm-hmm. as it survives. He was written off program for nearly a year, getting run over by a mysterious driver. And yes. God, God you, could, you could definitely tell the difference at the moment in the company without Austin because like, they'll learn to deal without having him there with the amount of talent they've got available. For this one pay-per-view, at least, you can tell yeah. there's, there's a giant rattlesnake hole in the WWF. <laughs> yeah, because I still saw some uh, some signs for Austin in the crowd, so I was a bit confused by his absence, but you explained it there. I think I did a pay-per-view with Ross on the retro reviews, and it was just as Austin was coming back. It might have actually been... It wasn't Armageddon 2000, but it might have been the one just before that uh, that I watched. Uh, so this is a, it's a good connection for me to make in my mind, you saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's nice how that works out. And I know what they're going for with the post-apocalyptic theme. It's Armageddon and End of Days and all that. But I don't get this, this set, like these weird war dugouts and just a, a random crashing helicopter as part of yeah. the set. It's, it's a nice looking set though, like like you said, 
it doesn't quite match the theme that they're going for. Like, it's a very, very, like you said, somber opening. Like, it's one of the weirder uh, WWE pay-per-view beginnings I can remember ever watching. Like, there's, like, it's not trying to get you hyped. It's almost like it's preparing you for some sort of funeral, like, or something <laughs> like that, man. Like, there's no buzz there. I do have to say, though, like, despite it not fitting the theme of Armageddon to a T, I did like the look of the set. I, I did like the look of the tank, and there was a machine gun there, and I was just like... That's something that's missing from the modern day product is like these really, really unique looking sets and making the most of that different environment, which did end up happening by the time we got to the main event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least it's got its own like unique look that they're trying something different for the mm-hmm. theme of the pay-per-view. Our, uh, our opening contest, 16 men, 8 teams, a tag team number one contenders battle royal for the winner will get a shot at the tie team titles at the Royal Rumble. We have mm-hmm. the Dudley Boys taking on Edge and Christian, taking on the Headbangers, taking on the Hardys, taking on the Mean Street Posse, taking on the Acolytes, taking on Too Cool, taking on Godfather and Mark Henry. And every one of these teams is in their own degree of being over. Because like, with the exception of the Mean Street Posse, everybody got a pop. Yeah. And it wasn't quite the pop that that Too Cool would get by the time we got to 2000. Like, I did notice that. Like, it's clearly the start of Too Cool becoming one of the more popular acts in the company here. You know, sort of building their way up. But with everyone else, like, the pop for the the Dudley boys, despite them being heels, was massive. Um, The Hardy boys coming out with uh, with Terry was an interesting uh, sight to behold. uh, And with (laughs) hindsight, uh, with 2020 vision there. Um, but I do, I do have to say, right? <laughs> how young does Mark Henry look here? It's absolutely amazing that he's been in the company like for this the long a time, man. And him with the Godfather, like when you say those two names together, like I would associate them with um, perhaps the Nation of Domination. Like I think they were both in that stable. But with those two gimmicks, the Godfather and Sexual Chocolate, it just works, man. And you can tell Mark was having the time of his life doing that. Hmm. A few noteworthy things about that's going on with each team that I should uh, talk about before we get into this. First off, it's a shock that Godfather and Mark Henry are even here, and I think they were just thrown together to make up the numbers, because this, this is random. Long-time listeners of this series will remember this storyline, but Mark Henry went through a thing where he came out on TV and admitted that he is a sex addict, and it went, through, it went through a series of vignettes where he was going to various different therapists to try and cope with this issue. He kept hitting on the first two the third one was gay, and hit, the third one was gay and hit on him. The fourth one was a an older woman, which is quite ironic, given that an angle he'll be involved in in a couple of months. Who then again hits on him, him, and then his fifth therapist is the Godfather, who basically tells him there's nothing wrong with him, and he basically just gives him free reign over the hose. And then yes. Godfather, he suddenly decides that Godfather's not giving him enough free reign, so Viscera in a random match wins all the hose from Godfather. Thanks to Mark Henry's interference, who then who turns on Godfather so he can take the hose, and then that Mark Henry Vista partnership ended a week later, and now randomly with no mention of it, Godfather and Mark Henry have somehow made amends. Listen, they must have went for a dinner behind the scenes. You know how friends can be. Like we've we've fought, we've had our battles before. Uh, clearly, the Godfather Mark Henry just you know they got the hose back, they got the gang back together, um, they got the gang bang together, and then you know the. <laughs> They're all ready to go, ready to go for the tag team titles, you know what I'm saying? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what, you, what you said about Tuco is correct. Only recently has Rikishi 
made his official debut on TV. And it's through the partnership with Kishi that Tukul have made this transition. That's a very slow one, but you can already see the progress from annoying heels to over baby faces. And it's a really good transition to see. And with Edge and Christian, would you would you be shocked to hear if I, if I told you that at this point in '99 there was already consideration to break up Edge and Christian? Yeah, that's it's a joke. It's a joke. Like one note in Edge and Christian, I don't know what bloody Howard Finkel's obsession is with announcing them Christian and Edge. Because every time I hear it, I just get annoyed. I'm like, it's Edge and fucking Christian. Like everyone knows that Howard get on board. You know what I mean? But he's like Christian and Edge, and I'm like, what are you doing? Um, but well, I think WWE, <laughs> yeah, he's going. He's I don't know what's up with him, man. I don't know what's up with him with that. But with Edging Christian, it just falls into the category of WWE wanting to jump the gun and break up tag teams too early, and it happens all the time. Like it's a wonder we've got tag teams in WWE right now, like the New Day, who have been together as long as they have. You know what I mean? Without WWE sticking their nose in and trying to try to get them gone. With the likes of Edge and Christian, thank goodness that they stayed together uh, after this because we know what's to come uh, with the TLC match innovations that they would they would help bring about to the tag team division um, and wrestling at large. They, they redefined what it, hardcore wrestling meant at WWE level as a team. Um, and looking at them here, they're not the polished competitors they would become for their intense singles runs later on obviously both multiple were time world champions and both WWE and Christian's case TNA they needed more time as a team uh, to develop their act and thank god they got it because there was good ch- good signs at the start of the match you know it showed good baby face fire coming out attacking the the Dudleys right off the bat before the match even started but I do agree with you Scott like this would have been far far too early to see the end of them as a team yeah, they were taught, it was according to Bruce Pitchery, it was going to, they were going to go to Mania 2000, and then shortly after they would break up. It was through Edge and Christian themselves, basically saying they basically begged to stay together, and eventually mm-hmm. WWE relented. And you can already see the signs of it because I remember hearing that podcast ages ago. I think it was actually a podcast about Christian that they were mm-hmm. talking about it on. And a few weeks ago, you hear the Dullies talking about how they took out Edge and Christian. It was a few weeks ago in a match with the Dullies that uh, Edge. Look, it looked like he'd injured his knee, but really it was a way to write him off because he had a cameo role in Highlander Endgame. They had to go film. Yes, yes, we've and, become an, an integral part of his legacy, that movie. And then the next week, Christian has a, a European title match against the Bulldog, and he comes out to this weird solo music. So you could definitely see like, trying him out with a, a different type of entrance music. They were definitely testing the waters for what it would be like if these two guys went out on their own. And like you said, thankfully, common sense prevailed. But we've been spending a lot of time talking about the teams. Let's actually talk about the match because it is very high fast pace, and it, it was a weird dynamic that only one member of each team had to be eliminated, which meant there yeah. were a few moments where one guy would get eliminated and the ref had to kind of just come up and tap the other guy on the shoulder and went, your partner's it, mate. You need, you, you need to go to the back. And the other guy looking very pissed off. I'm like, what the hell, man? Yeah, it made it made it quite clunky. The action in this one was was it was logic that went out the window at times. Like you'd see, you could clearly see Farouk several times. You'd see Bradshaw was in trouble, but instead of like rushing over to help his partner, like you'd just go and attack someone else. And you're like, mate, what are you doing? If he gets eliminated, like you're out the match. You know why is there 
why is there not any more teamwork here? It just feels like a normal battle royal. Um, but I do have to say, I did enjoy the, the hijinks and the Mean Street posse early on uh, with uh, members getting eliminated and then the third member would come in to replace them. Like I thought that was a really, really good sort of uh, pathetic heel strategy from them. I know, because it, it's uh, Pete Gass and Rodney who are coming in representing their team. Rodney gets eliminated, but uh, the referees are distracted on the other side of the ring. Yeah, so it's only one referee. It's uh, Jimmy Cordero. So I think he's the only referee for this, so he easily gets distracted at point. So then Joey Abs comes in to take his place, as if like, oh, they, they won't tell the difference, despite the fact Rodney's skinnier and blonde, and Joey Abs <laughs> is much bigger and has a ponytail. Yes, yes, and it's called Joey Abs. You know, like there's there's a difference there between him and and little skinny Rodney. But I do have to say, like Jim, Jimmy Cordes, I'm not going to slag the man. I remember him fondly for his time in that that horrible blue SmackDown referee shirt. So <laughs> you know, I can't I can't slag that man's officiating. I love his mustache. <laughs> yeah, eventually, all three members get eliminated. Eventually, and the referee spots it and get, tells him to get out of here. Godfather manages to take care of the headbangers. Good, like Jesus, they were the, well, I actually dislike the headbangers more than I dislike Mean Street Posse. Honestly, I've yeah. never seen the appeal of the headbangers. They're, they're pointless. They're a completely pointless team. Like, I don't know what their character is. Like, it seems to be going for shock value with the sort of stuffing of the bra and stuff like that. But it doesn't quite work. It doesn't even work in, in 1999. It doesn't work looking back in, it, in 2020. Like, the headbangers, I just think, is, is like they've fought about 5% of the gimmick and then done no more work to try and explain it or get it across. So I, like you, Scott, was just lost with them, did not understand it. Uh-huh. I remember they were, they tried to push them really big back in 97 like hmm this is like oh, the kids these days like that Marilyn Manson so bring these guys <laughs> you have them with Marilyn Manson t-shirts they're hip the kids all like these new headbanger lads <laughs> uh, nah this is Mark no nah. Mark came gets eliminated by the Acolytes uh, after we brawl between Christian and Scott Toy on the apron to eventually get eliminated uh, Devon's on the outside, he went through the ropes I think, but he didn't get eliminated because he manages to pull Edge off the apron and the referee spots it because Edge went over the top but hung on the apron, so when Devon pulls him off, uh, that eliminates Edge and Christian, so that keeps the Dudley's Edge and Christian thing uh, going, but eventually it does come down to the Hardys and the Acolytes, and you can already tell the fans are very much behind the Hardys Yeah um, and they are an actual it's hard. To, it's hard to say, but there's something just very sympathetic about the Hardys. You know what I mean? They're the, the little guys that could. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know what it is. Like it's it's hard to evaluate the career of the Hardys because you look at them today and they're still going. And it's it's just fills you with like a sense of pride looking looking back at them at this moment, the start of their careers, and they're just as popular now individually and differently as they were back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's weird to think at this point. Not only are both men still wrestling, but Matt Hardy this weekend is in a featured position at All Out, and Jeff Hardy is the is once again the Intercontinental Champion in WWE. Well, not if he asks Sami Zayn, but that's another story. He, <laughs> it's, it's just weird to think. And I remember actually, I think I had a tape of this of this pay per view, so there were some things I remembered because uh, I think my brother, me and my brother, would get tapes from my granddad who would tape stuff for us, and I remember watching this at a time. And I was kind of disappointed that the Hardys didn't win. 
They're actually mm-hmm. watching it now as part of the series. I'm, I'm even more confused that the Hardys didn't win because actually of the four weeks between Survivor Series and Armageddon, three out of the four weeks, the current tag team champions, the New Age Outlaws, have had run-ins with the Hardys because like, on one week on SmackDown, the Hardys got a title shot, Xbox interfered, and so the next week they had a cage match, which is even better, and once mm-hmm. again interfered, the Hardys got crossed again. But then the Hardys alongside the big show beat Xbox and the Outlaws in the main event of SmackDown two weeks ago with Matt yeah. pinning Road Dog. So you look at the story heading into Armageddon the last few weeks, by the logic of what's been happening on weekly TV, you'd expect, okay, this time the Hardys are going to get their title shot. And if Outlaws retain later on, the Hardys are finally going to get their revenge on the Outlaws, but that's not what happens. Yeah, and I think it's one of those cases where they're probably thinking, look, we'll hold off the Hardys they're still going to be just as popular, you know what I mean? They're not going to lose any of their heat. Let's put a sort of placeholder contender in here. And I have to say, the Acolytes, Bradshaw and Farouk, like, any time I've seen them, they get a good pop. You know, they're very hard-hitting competitors. There's a lot of big men in WWE at this time who it doesn't look as though they hit hard. It doesn't look as though they hit big. Uh, but anything like Bradshaw and Farouk do, like, you can tell, oh, my God, that hurts. It looks like it hurts. So just looking at it from my perspective, I wasn't annoyed in the eventual choice and winner. But like you're saying, logically, I can, the only thing I, I would be able to respond to that would be perhaps holding off the Hardys getting a title shot for an hour day. Yeah. They're definitely their team that looks like it's better when they're chasing the belts. Because they're actually, I think this is the answer to a quiz question of when I put together a wrestling quiz on this here on Roger Bynes. I believe the average, out of their seven tag title reign, the average length of a Hardy's tag title reign is like one month. So yeah. they, they always chase it and never hold on to the belt for too long, which is and very much down, it. That's down to Vince as well, because I remember reading in Batista Unleashed, which was uh, Dave Batista's autobiography, they released back in the day, like, Vince has openly said that he much prefers heel champions because the money is in the heel managing to escape the baby face and baby faces continuously trying to chase it, you know, in the hope that the, the heel will be dethroned. That's why we talk about Bradshaw, that's why he loved having GBL's long reign on SmackDown. You know, that's that's why you look at today, Roman Reigns as a heel is probably going to get a long reign on SmackDown with the Universal title. So I think it just comes down to Vince's preference. And in hindsight, I know what you're saying, but it, when we look back at the legacy of these things, it didn't harm the Hardy Boys one bit not to win this match. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that you said that apparently Vince loves heel champions because I, I believe this is also a prospectors thing that apparently much for much of the time where Vince's dad was running the, the company and for the early years that Vince was running it as well, they talked about how the mainly New York crowds that they would run in front of back mm. in the day hated heel champions, which is why mm. heel champions usually only held on to it for a while and why he had Bruno and Backlund and Hogan holding on for the belt for long periods of time. So it's weird. Yeah. It's interesting to think where Vince's... Uh, Vince's change of heart came around and the idea of like changing up and having a long reign and heel champion, but still and that's the thing. No, wait, like, like Scott, it's been it's cause he's been that long, like he's allowed to change his mind. Like that's Vince back in the early days of WWE. And when I read that quote in Batista's book, it was in reference to Triple H's Reign of Terror and JBL. Since then, he might have changed his mind back to that. You know what I mean? That is just the the sort of to and fro nature of the enigma that is Vince McMahon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Hardys by all rights should have won this like several times because the referee keeps missing 
the accolade mm. getting eliminated. And there's one point where Bradshaw and Matt go out at the same time because they hit at the same time. The referee just lets the match continue because also it's hard to tell who hit first. And then the finish, as much as I didn't like the accolades winning, it was a good finish because like I think it's Bradshaw dangling on the apron and then Jeff runs at him and then just gets launched to the outside. He could have landed. He looked like he was a bit of land on the barricade to save himself, but he just bounces off it and touches the floor. Accolades yeah. went. Uh, 10 minutes and 56 seconds this opening match went and like as far as Battle Royals go it wasn't that bad that Battle Royals can really be hit or miss but I think it, it really accomplished what it set out to do is it just featuring yeah. the, the length the depth of the tag division at this point and it got, over. it got better as it whittled down um, I really really enjoyed the end sequence between the Hardys and the Acolytes like like you say, like the Hardys didn't lose any heat from this because they should have won it several times, and that finish as well. It's not even that. It's not even that he's launched over the top rope. Like I think Farouk's in the middle of the ring when he first throws Jeff in there. You know what I mean? Like it's some bloody traveling he does to the outside. I was like, oh god, like one of those Winston moments. But like you say, like at the start of it when there was too many bodies in the ring, I was just like, this is a bit by the numbers. I don't understand the logic here. But when it started getting whittled down, especially that end sequence between Bradshaw, Farouk, Matt, and Jeff, I thought it was a really, really strong opener. Mm-hmm. So we go backstage as Lillian Garcia is interviewing the most celebrated real athlete in the WWF, the <laughs> only one month ago debuting Kurt Angle, who to in response to Lillian saying you've had such great success so far in the WWF, he just responds, well thank you, I certainly have. And <laughs> he talks about his opponent tonight, Steve Blackman, and how they lost a tie team match on SmackDown to the Dudleys, but Kurt is insisting he is still undefeated as Blackman got pinned, therefore it's his loss and not Kurt's. And then he talks about how, you know, I've been getting some weird responses from the crowd recently, but I know the floor, the crowd here in Florida will appreciate an American hero. I think <laughs> Kurt makes his way to the ring for his big match against the charisma black hole that is the Blackman. And yeah. boy, boy, oh boy, did they, do they have a build for this match? You, you will not believe this. <sighs> it's... The thing with Steve Blackman is he's the attitude he answer to like an Apollo Crews or a Cedric Alexander in the modern day. Like, see, watching Steve Blackman, probably one of the most prof uh, technically proficient wrestlers on the roster at this point. And I'm watching this frustrated because I'm like, they, these two have a better match in them than this, you know what I mean? But it's just with Steve Blackman, like, there's nothing to the guy. You know, it's just, it's just plain black trousers and he's got nunchucks and like oh it's 1999 nunchucks are cool you know what i mean like nah i just I, i'm aside with you in that i just don't get steve blackman and i think he just he suffers and it's more glaringly obvious here than it is maybe if you were to put steve blackman on the current roster because he's surrounded by these larger than life characters of the attitude era that he just sticks out like a sore thumb so they've been tag he and kurt have been tagging for the last few weeks they've gotten wins over the headbangers and the hardies, but then they suffered that loss to the Dudleys. Mm -hmm. But what's confusing is two weeks ago, they announced Randall and Conte, Kurt Angle is going to take on Steve Blackman at, at Armageddon. Okay, so in, you've had them, you've announced that they're teaming, you've had them team for, a, you've announced that they're going to face each other, they've had them team for the last few weeks, and then right before the go-home show before they face each other, the team dissolves. You really yeah. thought this arse about face, you should have had them team together, and then on SmackDown, 
Kurt turns on Steve Blackman because he lost, and then Steve Blackman goes backstage and says, "I want Kurt Angle at Armageddon this Sunday." Like, mm-hmm. It just seems like I don't like. I know, like it's very comfortable here in the armchair booking the show in retrospect, but it just seems so simple because, like, this is very much an undercard match. It's just a straightforward yeah. wrestling match. I think it's not booked to have any frills. However, to an audience at this time, it's still hard to get invested in. Because when you actually think about it, early Kurt Angle, he was a very much a hated heel by simply just having good matches. Like, oh, he's boring. All he does is wrestle. But the wrestler, all he does is wrestle. And that's why you hate him. Yeah. And it works here for Angle. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's the contrast. Like you said, it works for Angle because he is that technically proficient and he is as good as he says he is at wrestling. But... You know, he's he's trying to play this white meat babyface character that would have looked great in the nineteen eighties, but does not work by the time you get to nineteen ninety nine. The problem with it on the flip side is they'd be better with an opponent who was more gimmick than they were technically proficient. But Steve Blackman is the sort of if Kurt Angle's the self aware version of that gimmick, Steve Blackman <laughs> is just the sort of the straight up version of that character, you know what I mean? Uh, I think that's the best comparison you can make. Uh you got two Americans facing each other, so naturally the crowd chants the USA for some reason. <laughs> and uh, we also get boring chants at, mm. at one point as well. Uh, also, I you can show how interesting this match was that I made a note of a sign that says Triple H fears turkey jizz. <laughs> what jizz? Turkey. <laughs> so Ross's jizz, not going on. For those of you who don't get that, my brother's in holiday in Turkey. <laughs> a lot of time recording, he'll be back by the time this is up. <laughs> but at one point, Kurt Angle does go for a minsault the first time he's tried it. And it's the first of many times that he'll go for that move and miss it. Mm. Uh, Blackman doesn't really help himself. He keeps going for submissions on Angle. But Angle gets the one not with the ankle lock or even the Olympic slam. He gets a, a bridging German suplex, a beautifully done German suplex, but still... Not the kind of move you expect from Kurt Angle. And Kurt Angle wins this in just over six minutes. Mm. Yeah. Flat finish to a flat match. Um, the only thing that protects it is that the Angle not using his finisher makes it seem like it's not a definitive win over Blackman. That is just, he's pinned them really well. He's had really good technique to get the win. And then Blackman obviously gets his heat back to a certain extent, attacking uh, Angle, Donatello style. In <laughs> fact, it wasn't Donatello, it was Michelangelo. I'm talking mm-hmm. talking nonsense, Michelangelo style with the nunchucks. Um, so it was hard to care about this one. I'll be honest with you, Scott. This was this was probably my toilet break match for the evening. If I if I can be honest with you, I must say, fucking that first the hot rod, the forest gump, and then the ninja turtles. Fuck, I mean, your credentials as a movie podcast author are dwindling. I, You're exposing yourself here. I love the ninja turtles, mate. I love the the biggest one of the biggest injustices in the history of cinema is that the animated TMNT film that came out 2010's time didn't get a sequel. I loved that movie when I was younger. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chris Evans, I think it was voicing Casey Jones, yes. wasn't it? Yes, it was honestly like I honestly loved it, man. I loved the relationship between Raphael and Leonardo in that movie, but that's for a different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, like, I remember at the time uh, the PSP game for that film that came out at that time, I played that game over and over again for a while. <laughs> you know, that's like I said, that's getting into a whole different discussion, but yeah, Blackman, being a sore loser, does attack Kurt after the match with nunchucks. 
And mm. what, what is, what is kind of, well, I know this is book to kind of be quite kind of boring, but it's quite telling that Blackman hitting Kurt after the match with nunchucks gives the Kurt because they're going to be more, more vocal than they had been during the entire match. Mm. Yeah, and he barely he barely gets a pause. He goes up awkwardly to the second rope, sort of stretches out his arms, and the crowd's like sort of lip servicing him with their applause. Man, like I don't think Steve Blackman's ever really been over in his life, to be honest with you. Mhm. So here we go. This is going to be the big thing you talk about. Lord, we get a flashback to Sunday Night Heat where Miller and May Young push Ivory in the pool. Mm. Where our next match is going to take place, and then uh, we have a uh, Virgin Michael Cole coming into BB's dressing room and basically <laughs> acting, like he's, acting like he's never seen a woman before, and then just wandering out before he finishes his interview. First of all, I didn't know who BB was <laughs> whatsoever, like at all. Like I have never heard of BB, and that's rare. Like for <laughs> BB not to come up any time I've done ESSR like, in any discussion on ESSR chat, shows you how insignificant BB, <laughs> BB proves to be in the overall history of wrestling. I was watching this, and I was like, who the fuck is this woman? Who the... Who, like, honestly, like, I was bamboozled, Scott, because it is rare that I've never at least heard the name of someone like that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'll tell you who BB is. Well, first off, BB apparently stands for Barbara Bush, I think. In, in the in kayfabe and so what happened is on two weeks ago two or three weeks ago on Smackdown it was a Thanksgiving episode and so naturally Ivory takes on Jacqueline in a gravy ball match mm-hmm. with uh, Miss Kitty's special guest referee Jacqueline wins the match so out of in retaliation uh, Ivory tries to drown Miss Kitty in gravy and I think she choked on something because BB then tries to help her and then Ivory rips open BB's top and throws her in the gravy, and we expose the fact that BB's got massive tits, which the crowd pops for. And she's she's been appearing in the background for a couple of months as a EMT. But honestly, as I've said before, the only believable way I could see her playing EMT is in some sort of porn parody of the WWF. And then the next week on Raw, we have BB coming in to cut a promo about what happened with Ivory, and it turns out she's got the the porn acting to match her appearance because just. So deadpan, lack of emotion. I am really embarrassed by what happened with Ivory. Tell your voice, love. And it felt like they were setting up BB v Ivory at a one-on-one match, one-on-one evening game match. Oh, and then they realized, and they realized within a week. You know what, guys? I think I've just noticed BB is awful. So let's <laughs> make this a four-way match. Let's add Miss Kitty and Jacqueline, and then somehow. It wasn't mentioned on SmackDown, so somehow between SmackDown and this, they've added the pool randomly. Mm-hmm. And also, the big crux of the story is not the WF women's title being on the line. BB's not even a main part of the story anymore. The main story is, what will happen if Miss Kitty gets her even get ripped off? Because apparently Miss Kitty doesn't wear underwear. And that's the crux of the story. Miller and May are the guest enforcers. And I know Miller's a, a horrible human being. This woman... <laughs> This woman held the women's title for decades. Now, you've got to imagine her looking at a title that she held for so long and thinking, this title is being defended in a pool. A lot of the time with these segments, Mila and May might be the only saving factor of them. 
because they're out there to have fun and God bless them. Like they, they put themselves on the line time and time again, you know what I mean? Uh, for the sake of entertainment. But honestly, Scott, when I seen Ivory come out, that's when my heart sunk because I was like, Ivory, you're actually a good wrestler. Like Jacqueline as well. Like I'm watching Ivory and Jacqueline in this match and I'm like, you guys can actually wrestle. Like the way, the reverence with which Booker T talks about Jacqueline is unreal. Like, in Booker's eyes, Jacqueline's one of the best to ever do it, male or female, you know what I mean? So, seeing them in this environment was was sad. The same cannot be said for Miss fucking Kitty, who I have an un... an un... I, I, I can't... an unfavorable hatred for. Mate, I can't stand her. I really, really cannot stand her. And do you know why I can't stand her? It's because of Jerry fucking Waller. Like, by the time we got to the main event, Jerry Lawler still talking about Miss Kitty, trying to put Miss Kitty on her, over because he's banging her on backstage, and I just absolutely resent it, mate. I resent it so much. So anytime I see Miss Kitty involved in a segment now, I'm like, God, no, no, I just can't deal with it. Oh, I, I know. just it's, it's unbearable. And the annoying thing is, Jacqueline comes out, Miss Kitty's out, Kitty pushes Jacqueline in the pool, and then BB and I and Kitty are having an argument, and then it cuts to Ivory. And for a second, you hear I see Ivory come out, and you hear the girl going, eh. I thought, oh, good, Ivory's actually getting a pop, she's getting the recognition he deserved. No, yeah. they weren't popping for her. Apparently, BB and Kitty fell in the pool, and that's what people were popping for. And I'll tell, tell you this one thing I've learned watching these shows back is that Ivory deserves that Hall of Fame induction far mm-hmm. more than, than we would ever know because. Yeah. God bless that one between Trish and Lita coming in in 2000 and Sable kind of holding the division up in 98, starting 99. Ivory is that bridging of the gap in the middle. Like you've got Luna and Jacqueline there as well, but they barely get much opportunities. So Ivory is the one constant on TV. If there's a women's segment and it's not China, it's probably Ivory. Yeah. And honestly, God bless her. I my exposure to Ivory comes from she came back for the Evolution Battle Royal, uh, which she actually did fairly well in. I think she made it to the final four uh, of that of that particular contest. But I remember her doing really, really, really well and impressing that. Obviously, she's no spring chicken by the time we get to I think it was twenty eighteen. But holding her own against modern day competitors in that match and. You're right, Scott. She is one of these names that gets overlooked so much. Like, I remember even in the SmackDown games back in the day, she was one of the few female competitors I was was interested in. I was like, oh, Ivory seems pretty cool. You know what I mean? Ivory doesn't seem like everyone else. And I think it comes down to something you brought up with BB is acting and being able to deliver good promos on the mic. That's a strength that Ivory held over the rest of the women's division at this time and still probably could do a good job of of fulfilling that role today, should WWE give it a call? Well, one interesting fact I can say about BB, and it's a thing I've been bringing up with each of my like guest co-hosts, because I still find it hard to believe. Do you know who, I don't? I think they were engaged, but I don't know if they got married, because I know they broke up years later. Do you know who BB got engaged to on the WWF roster? I'm going to take a guess. I will take a guess, and I will say, oh, I'll say someone stupid like Gerald Briscoe. It was Hardcore Holly. Oh, hardcore? Mm-hmm. Seriously? you got to think that, that he's not the most charismatic man in the world, this Hardcore Holly. So how does this man woo a woman like BB? Honestly, you gotta, there's his a fly-in-the-wall conversation in a bar you want to see. I'm just saying his core must be hard. You know, it must be big when it's hard. 
You know what I mean? BB, BB loves the, the big guys, the, the super heavyweights. She's into yes. those over 400 pound men. <laughs> BB loves Bob, mate. That's what she loves. <laughs> Bob's babe, that's what it stood for. BB, not Barbara Bush or anything like that. But Bob's you can see how, we, we can see how much we're trying to avoid talking about this match because there's nothing to talk about. No. It was 2 minutes 57 this win. And the most offense is either pulling at someone's evening gown or splashing <laughs> them with water. That's the yes. main bit of offense. And my theory about this, I mentioned it a bit on SmackDown, is that apparently Vince, one of, something that Vince thinks is the funniest thing in the world is seeing somebody get pushed in a pool. And that, plus these women, we're getting a weird insight to what Vince is into. Like, I'm getting a weird visualization of him and Linda on date night. Linda, go put on your best dress, and I'm going to push you on the pool. Jesus. Oh, that's good shit. You can't do that, Scott, because the electrical, you know, uh, fire that would cause with Linda's chainsaw in hand uh, would not be nice, you know. But I, I think you're right. Like this, this does show Vince in a bad light. It shows the company in a bad light in hindsight, just because of the taste of it. But also, it's a product of the time. You need to bear that in mind, you know. But it just solidifies for me the fact that Armageddon 1999 is definitely a show of two halves. It starts off okay with the tag match but a lot of it after that was a bit weak until we get to a certain point where we start getting the main event guys uh, and they are more interesting and established feuds you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, I don't really know what else I can say I mean the thing with the chainsaw by the way there's a lot of ESSR references we're making here that some people are not going to get whatsoever yeah sorry I, I need to explain this um Basically, my fetish is Linda McMahon with a chainsaw. <laughs> we, we all have our things. <laughs> I am David Campbell, and I am a chainsawaholic. <laughs> so Jacqueline's the first out, and I think she was glad of it to get out of this thing as soon as. Then BB's eliminated, and then I think there was maybe a spot where Ivory basically tears off BB's bra or something, but she manages to cover up. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, BB's just standing on the wee platform back before the pool, and Ivory gets up and spends an ungodly amount of time pulling at the back of her bra, and yeah. nothing is happening. So obviously they decide to abandon the spot by having Miss Kay just drag Ivory back in the pool. So BB just wanders off, and the crowd boos like mental, like mm-hmm. a nuclear bit of heat there for not yeah. seeing BB tits. <laughs> I don't know what else to say on that. Um... Ivory should have improvised just just executed a picture perfect Northern Lights suplex or something like that I don't know um, <laughs> no com- no further comment you know no. so basically Miss Kitty wins and then tries to get her tits out apparently there is video version and the original version she does get them out just for a second but the network version is obviously pixelated and I have to, I have to imagine that many young teenagers watching the original 99 tape were probably pausing it like mad as was Jerry Lawler. <laughs> and yeah, I say, later on, Jerry Lawler says, I just saw some real-life puppies, which just be- which I don't think Jerry really saw that line through, because that implies to me that Jerry Lawler, despite being, what, 40, 50 years old at this point, has never seen tits in his life. Oh, he does play it like a hormonal teenager, doesn't he? I think that's his whole act at this time. And fair play, it's over on that, and she did it. It works for the time. <laughs> he is entertaining as a commentator. But I just hate his fucking. Whenever he brings up Miss Kitty, I'm just like, nah, nah, just get that out of my face, man. <laughs> and then me young for a reason tries to undress. But thankfully, not a real sergeant slaughter. 
Sergeant always ruining the fun for us all, man. You know, <laughs> always ruin it. Me, me just wants to be free. You know, and and that's that's oppression right there from Sergeant Slaughter. That's nothing more, nothing less than oppression of me, young. Uh, eh, I don't know how I can transition here. Uh, I'll do, I'll do my best. Speaking Two of people who were not oppressed. <laughs> Speaking of that, Rikishi's backstage. <laughs> Nice. There's a flashback to Heat where uh, they're having a weigh in with the Hollies, and then there's a brawl that ensued afterwards. And this is the first time Rikishi's got a promo. And how does Rikishi decide to start his first promo? That's a little bit of rhyme. He says, Hickory, Dickory, Dot, Rikishi finally talks. And then it looks like he's about to start rhyming the rest of his promo, and then he clearly just gives up. And then he says, the Hollies are making fun of his weight, and he says, I represent all the healthy, fat people in the world. And then warns Viscera that he better have his back in the tie team match. The so, irony of a healthy, fat person when we know what happened to Big Viss later on is not fun in hindsight. Uh, I have to say that. And also Rikishi's promo, man, like where we see where Rikishi will end up in WWE and how popular an act he'll end up being in the next year to see him here man was just sad very very sad beginnings for the character mm, this is uh, the first ever pay-per-view match for Rikishi and he's teaming with Viscera a favourite of ours over at ESSR mm. taking on Hardcore and Crash Holly and oh god are, are you sitting down Dave are you sitting strapped in ready to hear the build for this match oh I can't wait I cannot wait so get this Two weeks ago, they said on commentary, the Hollies are going to face Rikishi and Viscera at Armageddon. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that's it. And that's then, it. and then on that same Raw, too cool, beat Crash and Hardcore in under a minute. And then singles matches over the next week or so, Rikishi has squashed both Crash, Holly and Hardcore. So, that's Massive. our belt. <laughs> Amazing stuff. WWE, you know, you just can't accuse them of being lazy. You know, they're writing war and peace for the modern day uh, with feuds like this, you know, with the, the Holly Cousins and Rikishi and Big Viss. I do have to ask, um, I hope certain members of the ASSR panel are not listening, but Viscera is utterly shite, man. He's so bad. He's honestly so bad. I hate his stupid, shiny costume as well. Like, everything about Viscera in this match, I was just like, you have no business being in a wrestling ring. Like, whenever I watch a Nia Jax match now, I'm going to just remember, at least she's not Viscera. At least she's not at least she's not Viscera. I mean, my, my opinion of Viscera is really turning in the last few weeks because he's beaten Kane not once but twice in the last week. Once by Kurt out and then once by Pinfall. Both Special. times both times thanks to that prick X Buck. And, <laughs> and then later and then on the go home raw before this, he challenged the big show for the WWF title. <laughs> I shit you up, Viscera. You're shitting me. Viscera got a WWF title match. Because he beat Kane twice. That's it. He <sighs> got a WWF title match. We'll get to it later on, but the WWF title scene was really suffering at this time, wasn't it? Oh, it definitely was. But we'll get to the actual match itself, because Rikishi seems to fend off the Hollies pretty well to start off. And Vistara seems very reluctant to even tag in, which makes you wonder, why the fuck is he even on in this 
to begin with. He goes to he goes to sit on Crash's chest, but he moves. Uh, this, they, they dominate for the majority of this, but and this match only goes four minutes eighteen. Rikishi starts it off and then tags in Viscera, and Viscera is in for less than a minute. But when he goes for his big spot that leads to the finish, it cuts to Viscera in the corner, and he looks shattered. Like he's just wrestled a twenty-minute match. He's breathing. He's leaning on, heavily breathing. He's leaning on the ropes. Like, mate, you've done nothing this match. Rikishi's done all the work here. I I can relate to this because I played five sides for the first time in months tonight, and I was looking at some of my pals thinking the same thing. Um, but a couple of them acting like big this after five minutes. But you're right, man. It just it speaks volumes. This is that. It's not that he has a lack of talent; it's that he has no talent whatsoever. And when you combine that with no athletic ability whatsoever, it just makes for one of the most ineffective wrestlers I have ever seen inside a wrestling ring. I remember thinking to myself, "Jesus, like how up? Like that's a rare sight seeing Bitter challenge the title when he had that match against Big Show." And then I remembered four years earlier when he was Mabel, he may have entered SummerSlam for the title. I forgot about that. And in a match where he had nearly broke Kevin Nash's back and nearly got fired for it. Here's a fun question for you. Has is he the only wrestler to challenge for a world championship under three different gimmicks in WWE outside of Bray Wyatt and um Mike Foley? I don't know, I think so, because yeah, it's Big Daddy V, I think he challenged for the ECW title. ECW, so, and I think he had a World Heavyweight title elimination chamber appearance. No, yeah. That was the one in 2008. It was the winner goes on to face the world champion. Ah, was a number one contender match? Right, okay. Mm-hmm. That was the one that Jacob won that he yeah. threw off the pod. Fair enough. Fair enough. My mistake. So, Vistar getting ready for his big spot. He does it, goes for a weird spin kick and accidentally hits Rikishi in the back of the head. And instead yeah. of trying to break up the pin, he basically just le- stands there while Harker rolls over and pins Rikishi. So the ho- the Hollies get battered for the majority of this match. And you think that would be their comeuppance for the whole, oh, we're super heavyweights and all that. And we've been calling Rikishi fat for weeks. Uh, so they're the comeuppance as two actual super heavyweights beat them up. But no, they, just, they get a fluke win when the two super heavyweights can't work together. It was a load of crap. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like something that you should have put on Raw or SmackDown, and then just have the Rikishi versus Viscera match at Armageddon. You know, what I mean, let's not beat around the bush here by giving the Hollies something to do. I mean, hardcore Hollies, say what you will about him. He was a consistent part of the program to like 2007. Crash, I've seen some of his hardcore title stuff. Very entertaining character, but this win did nothing for them. You know what I mean? Like in the grand scheme of things, no one remembers this match. No one cares about this feud. Um, and it would have been better just to have Rikishi beat Visida on his first pay-per-view appearance rather than all the bells and whistles of this super heavyweight malarkey, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Things are going to look better for Rikishi going forward. He's going to have a really good show in, in the Royal Rumble that a lot of people remember. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you, this did nothing for him. So we go backstage to Val Venus, who in the in, back in October, November time, they looked like they were trying to push him as a serious like me, like contender. And then they slowed now. They moved them back to the to the mid card. They're going to try again with the uh, with him as a serious competitor in two thousand with the, your favorite wrestler by his side. 
that for now he's really firmly back in the lower mid-card as he's preparing for his European Championship match. And basically the crux of his promo here is basically, I'm going to win the title, fly to Europe and shag a bunch of European women. And then, like, huh, well, you're from Spain, that's in Europe. I'll talk Spanish to you. That apparently will make me very attractive to you. Yes. And, and then he and Lillian wander off. And so I'm wondering, did he end up pumping Lillian before he came out? Because then he, his music hits shortly after that. So he's a team must have been quick. Yeah, I think they've probably agreed to post-match coitus. You know, that's, that's probably <laughs> been the situation there. Um, I was surprised, actually, by this match because looking at the competitors involved, in my head, I'd be thinking Bulldog over the hill. Val Venus never really cared for him. Uh, D'Lo Brown, I'm a bit higher on it, actually. I have a lot of respect for D'Lo, um, and he's one of the better uh, lower mid-card acts in WWE at this time, I think. But I really enjoyed this triple threat match. I enjoyed seeing Teddy Long uh, in his referee gear, you know, kicking out the Main Street posse at the beginning, who them and Bulldog was a sight I did not expect to see. I, I have to say I was very, very confused by, by that pairing. Um, but the action in this one, I have to say I rather enjoyed Scott, to be honest with you. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Uh, like I said, Val Venus versus Dilo Brown versus the British Bulldogs for the European title. I've said before in the weekly nuts, if I asked you, name me three men who would challenge for the European title at this time, these are probably the names you'd come up with. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I agree with you. I love seeing Terry along as uh, the gear for He sends the posse to the back. Like, you guys got nothing but problems. Get to the back. And it is true because it was Dilo who Bulldog won the title from and it was the worst heavy interference from the posse in that match. Mm-hmm. So at least there's some some continuity going forward. And you think Bulldog, I see it week on and week out, it just it's harder and harder to watch him wrestle. It's a, a good triple threat match. He only has to come in every now and then and Dilo and uh, Val can handle most of the work, which they do. But then you watch Bulldog and like, how are you still so bad when you're accomplishing so little in this triple threat? I know, I know. It's I don't know, man. I don't know. With Bulldog at this point, we we know about the problems he experienced throughout his life, so I don't want to I don't want to make comment on that. But we're told the story about SummerSlam when he won the title from Brett in that iconic moment that it was Brett that carried him through that match. And while Val, Val Venus and D'Lo Brown are by no means bad competitors, they're no Bret Hart, you know what I mean? So it's, it's hard for them to, to negotiate their way around a bulldog who just doesn't really have it anymore. And is wrestling in jeans, for God's sake, man. You know what I mean? Who's he yeah. thinking of? Dean Ambrose, John Moxley. Because like you said, Val, I've never much cared for him either. you got Bulldog who's passed it. And this isn't the same D'Lo Brown either. He's still suffering a very much a crisis of confidence. As he's a couple of months removed from the draws incident, mm-hmm. and that apparently shook him for a long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this is not the same deal Brown either. So they they try their best. Like I said, valid deal do do most of the work. Like Bulldog, even when he's Bulldog sent to the outside, you can occasionally see him kind of just standing there by the bag, he kind of waiting for his spot to come in, like pull someone off a cover or yeah. something like that. I think there was a double team spot on Bulldog where he's kind of did a they do kind of a double hip toss on him. And he still somehow manages to fuck it up and nearly land on his head. That's the thing I see. I see I enjoyed the action in this one. I think it's just because I 
try to be nice to all the guys involved, but now when you mention spots like that, in hindsight, it is a little clunky. I think actually mostly I'm referring to the finish because I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the finish for what it was. To be honest with you, I want to say I'll admit me this not during Val's promo. Like he always tries to make like sexual innuendos, and he really the longer time went on, the more desperate he, he did he was to make things work. That yeah. he's talking about trying to win a title. Like, and yet there was no jokes about putting the strap on or something like yeah. that. And he's probably like, come on, low-hanging fruit, Val. That's your, this is your real house, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's hard because there's a combination of you want him to come across a serious threat to win the belt, though. You know what I mean? At the same time as the gimmick. And I think sometimes people put a ceiling on their gimmick by maybe leaning too heavily into it. Like, there's a reason I've never seen Val Venus win the WWE title is because they were never going to have a a porn star as a as a world champion, you know what I mean? Just n- no matter what era it was. Um, but I actually kind of liked that shade of grey in the promo and his character presentation and that, yes, he did enjoy the sex um, and everything around that, but also he was a, a serious competitor uh, when the bell rung, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's some good spots. The sunset flip ball on Bulldog. He hits. He hits the power slam on Val, but the foot get, gets a foot on the rope. Actually, I think it's Deal that puts uh, Val, uh, Val's foot on the rope. He comes in, hits the the sky high on Bulldog. But even Bulldog struggles to even get up and get enough height to be hit with it. Even though the sky high seems like uh, such a, a simple move to take, it's basically just an elevated spine buster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes up to the top for the load and hits the splash on Bulldog. And like you said, I really enjoyed this finish because then Val jumps from the other side, kind of from off camera, out into frame, with the money shot on Deal's back, pushes him off, and then covers the Bulldog for the win. And oh, just over eight minutes, Val Venus wins, I believe, his first and only European title. I think he's been IC champion by this point, and he will have another ring with the IC title later on. But this is the one and only time Val would win the European title. Yeah, and... <laughs> I was I was surprised by it, like, and it was like you pointed out there. It was really, really a shock because I assumed that the D'Lo was going to win the belt back. No interference from the posse, uh, maybe lead to a feud with him and Val down the line. Um, but like you said, Val Venus comes into frame, gets the gets the big win, and there's a suitable pop from there when he does it. Yeah, because it's a decent pop because the crowd arcs quite for much of the match, especially after one or two like botches from on the Bill Dogs part. I think that quickly quiets the crowd up, but they get a pop from this because uh, you see, suddenly see uh, Val climbing on the, up on the turnbuckle. Do so you wonder is he going to be able to get the, the splash in time? And it's mm-hmm. interesting because, as I said, before he hit that, he got hit with a power slam from Bulldog. So for a second, it looked like that was the bit that was take out Val and allow yeah. Bulldog and Dilo to do the finish. But then Val comes in from an hour, he covers just in time to steal the European title from under Dilo. So when you think about it, it's a really smart finish. Yeah, it's it seems it like you said that that seemed like the spot that was going to take him out of the match, and you know that's what like in wrestling. That's probably why I have a more positive view in this match in hindsight. Like I was saying before, was because it was a good finish. It was a finish that kept me guessing, and a lot of the time watching these matches, even without context, I was able to to guess the winner a lot of the time before before the match even finished. Um, so it was good to get that little shock factor in at the end of this European title encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, good. we're coming up to a match I think is actually probably my favourite match of the night mm. and not, not just because of who's in it uh, even though it did have a little bit 
We have Export being interviewed about his match with Kane that has apparently now been made a cage match as of Sunday Night Heat. So yes. Xbox decides he's going to make some changes. He claims that Kane can only win by pinfall and not by escape, whereas Xbox can escape the cage. Mm-hmm. And then he, he throws some shade at Tory Kane's girlfriend saying, tell her to stop calling my hotel room at night. Yes. Uh, Xbox, what a deplorable little bastard he's been in the last couple of months. And this, this stuff you don't know about as well, because um, this is one of the more memorable feuds of X-Pac's uh, career, I think, is uh, the Kane sort of Tory saga. So I was actually, I was really happy to see this match on the card, to be honest with you. Because mm-hmm. uh, x he turned on Kane when DX got back together, and then he's just been getting up in Tory's face. The last couple of weeks, he's actually kicked Tory right in the face. Oh. And then... And like he's been hitting, he has it's a spin kick as well. So once or twice he tried to play off as an accident, but like you had to spin round to kick somebody, and you were looking at her as you did it. Like there's no way that was an accident, you little prick. And I think this is definitely the beginning of a X Pac key, especially it was for me because of what X Pac did to Kane. Yeah, it's one of those ones where it seemed like a good partnership. It's one of those partnerships that Kane seems to do well in. The sort of mix, mix, uh, mix match pairing where you wouldn't expect him to do well with this partner and he does end up doing well. Uh, but X-Pac is brilliant, particularly the way he delivers that stip- stipulation about Kane not being able to escape. Like, it's it's just good heel heat. He reminds me of a sort of prototypical Baron Corbin, obviously not the the same stature, uh, very different performers inside the ring, but the attitude and the mannerisms and the just wanting to do anything to win or weasel your way out of a situation. I, I very much enjoyed that from X-Pac. Mm-hmm. It's very rare to have a, a, a heel X-Pac size going up against a face Kane size. Yeah. I think X-Pac's done such a good job of making himself so unlikable that uh, you want to see Kane just kill him. And now they're inside a steel cage where you think X-Pac can't get away. So Kane gets into the, the cage and then X-Pac decides to go over to Tori and get in her face. So Kane just climbs over the cage and just climbs down and attacks X-Walk and they brawl on the outside to start the match before actually starting the match in the cage. Yeah, X-Walk does hit Kane with the ring bell before they get in the cage. And uh, the, basically the first, crux of the first part is basically Kane basically dominates X-Walk while X-Walk tries to take any shortcut he can to uh, to get out of the advantage. Like, he tries to stop X-Walk from climbing out but Kane gets up getting crouched on the top rope. And then uh, the outlaws come in and get involved, uh, hitting Kane in the face with the door. And then X-Walk actually handcuffed Kane to handcuff Kane to the side of the cage just so Kane can't stop X-Walk escaping. And uh, King tries to imply that Tory passed the, uh, the handcuffs into Kane because apparently Tory's into that kind of thing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and... This was this was really really good because this is what I associate the attitude era with. Like these really good stories, intricate stories told in the ring, and then the interference. Obviously, in this case, the doubt was, and that oh, we've got the handcuffs. How are we going to overcome the the handcuffs? And it's pre- it's presenting seemingly insurmountable things for your baby face to overcome, which is very effective, and really really works here with Kane. Like you said, the dynamic of the little man being the heel and the big man being the baby face, it's hard to play that off. But with the interference with the cheating from X Pac and, and his DX cohorts, it really it really sells Kane as a baby face that you want to just get get you want to get your hands on X Pac and you want Kane to do it for you and you want him to just obliterate the little bastard, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Before he got handcuffed, uh, the outlaws did pass a chair X, but so he hits hit the X fighter on the chair, then he handcuffs Kane, and then Tori tries to stop X from escaping the cage. Then she gets out of the X factor, and it seems to be whenever anyway, someone tries to mess with Tori, that's what fires came back up again. So Kane manages to rip the handcuffs off, and then he goes out the door, which is still kind of opened. So I don't know why X Box didn't decide to just go out the door. So X Box climbs out of the cage, so Kane climbs out the door, knowing that also he can't win that way. But he just stands under X Box and catches him on his shoulders, so X Box can't win either, and then just carries him around and throws him back through the door. So the match has to continue. And then I loved this finish. I loved it the first time I watched it. I loved watching it back here. Kane climbs up the cage like King Kogsky on the, the building and yes. then dances off with a massive clothesline off the top of the cage and then picks X-Bock up and just properly drills him with the tombstone. The first time in a while that Kane thinks used the tombstone because mm-hmm. Kane was more known for the choke slam. The tombstone was more thought of as Undertaker's move. But Kane hits the, the tombstone on X-Bock and gets the win in just over eight minutes. Honestly, it didn't feel like eight minutes because they, they crammed so much in as part of the story. I could have watched this for another five or so minutes. I really enjoyed this. It's a real gem of a match. Like the innovative stuff, like like you said, the spot where uh, Kane lifts X back, uh, back through the cage um, as he's trying to escape, I thought was really, really well done. And like you say, Scott, it's one of those images that, I associate with Kane is that that clothesline off the top of the cage. Like I've seen that before, despite never having watched this match in full before. So it is one of those enduring things, and there's not a lot I have to say. There is one moment that endures historically from Armageddon 1999, apart from this, but that is definitely another one of them. Uh, that is a sort of the defining moment in Kane's babyface run. You know, is is part of that. So really, really strong match, uh, and probably like you said. Uh, if not the best thing on the show, the best thing on the show, without a doubt, up until this point. Kane mm-hmm. also, and he's a kind of reverse attire, the kind of reverse black and red mm-hmm. attire. And I really struggle at times. I can't decide if I like this better or do I like the, like the classic attire with the mask. <laughs> it's, it's just a big thing for me as a game fan. I can't decide between the two. Uh, it's, it's good and it's on its own. But the one thing that lets us down in hindsight is knowing that this feud continues mm. and, and up to the point where you kind of lose a lot of interest. And at this point, it feels like Kane's gotten all the comeuppance he needs to get from Xbox. Mm. But I think, and Xbox has apparently even said in hindsight that one of the big regrets of his career is not letting this angle die when it needed to because apparently he was offered a big like, singles match at WrestleMania against Chris Jericho. And mm. he turned it down. He, turned it down to keep the angle with Kane going and that got blown off at mainly in a big tag match, even though Kane already got his, got his revenge here against Xbox. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where I know that Tori eventually turns on Kane and just knowing that in hindsight, I expected it to happen here. Um, like you say, X-Pac, hindsight's twenty twenty. he can't have known um, that it would have sort of fizzled out the way it did. And to be honest with you, from a sort of fan who's looking in hindsight, the expat Kane feud, like I said, is one of the more memorable feuds for both men in their career. You know what I mean? So mm. despite the fact it might have got less effective as it went on, um, it still goes down as a landmark moment um, in the sort of career of Kane and X-Pac. So you can't really complain too much. 
Yeah, definitely. I thought it's definitely a nitpick again. It's mainly due to hindsight because within the context of the story up until this point, I think it was a perfect match for the stipulation and everything. Obviously, the mm. cage kind of came out of nowhere, but like you said, given that their last match at Survivor Series and they kind of a DQ, and basically, even though they did get involved, it was a good way kind of for the most part, the first wee part of it is basically the fact that Kane dominates because now he's trapped in the cage with Kane, mm. and even though he can escape, Kane's not going to let him escape. So, from that respect, it's kind of it's good for what it is. So, we, we get a, a see a video package, kind of a recap of the last month or so of this feud, but just said to either person's uh, entrance music. It's China versus Chris Jericho for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, last month at Survivor Series, China beat Chris Jericho to retain the title, and apparently Jericho was so, com- so confident. He said, I'll get a sex change if I don't win. <laughs> and then it was Jerry Lawler, Miss Kitty, and China all took great pleasure in mocking him for. So Jericho <laughs> and smashed China's thumb with a hammer on Raw. And then a week or so later, China returned on SmackDown and hit Jericho in the face with a hammer in retaliation. And then and Jericho comes out like, how dare you? Like, I had a horrible Thanksgiving all I did was tap you on the thumb and you tried to bash my head in. I had a horrible Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's um, it's two larger-than-life characters coming together and it's it's magic, mate. You're saying the Kane match was your favourite on the show. This was mine. It's just the dynamic of these two. Chris Jericho, he's... It's hard to say which Jericho I like the best, but this one's up there. That this is really, really cocky, heel Jericho, akin to maybe what he's doing now, but he's younger. You know, he's brashier, he's he's bolder, um, and I really, really like this version of Chris Jericho. In China, I think is just you, there's not much you can say about China from someone who never really had the chance to watch her live and only hear her legacy to go back and actually watch her matches, I completely get it. I completely get why China was such a big deal. I completely get why she held the Intercontinental title because not only was she unique in her look, she was also really, really talented in the ring as well. What's weird about the titles here is that it's not unlikely to see a couple of titles defended each week on like Raw or Spadden, like a random tag title match mm-hmm. or a big European title match. China, since winning the title from uh, Jadot, at No Mercy, I think, has only defended the uh, the IC title twice, and both of them are against Jericho. I don't think she's had any title defences on TV, which is just random. I, I'm not quite sure the reason for that. Uh, have you read Jericho's uh, second autobiography, Undisputed? I have not, no. I was going to say, because I've been bringing this up with some of uh, my guest goes apparently Jericho had some heat coming in from Triple H around this time because well, one, because he was a WCW guy coming in, but apparently China, despite wanting to be treated as an equal, kind of complained about Jericho and claimed he was too rough with her when mm. Jericho was to try and get the best matches out of her because China really was only as good as the person she was in the ring with. So basically, yeah. that Vince and Triple H kind of looked down on Jericho for like a period of time. I think it's kind of blown over by this point, but it was thought that Jericho was too stiff and they... Uh, Jericho H even on an episode of SmackDown when he and DX are randomly berating these homeless people. He said, "This guy, look at this guy. He can't work. He's as bad as Jericho." <laughs> and apparently, there's even a story where Jericho H at first, when he first met Jericho, was like, "Hey, you ever need anything? Just let me know. You give me a call." And one time, Jericho arrived at his town and called Jericho H and went, 
hey, I can't really find uh, the arena. Do you know where it is? They went, you got any advice? I went, yeah, buy a fucking map. And Triple H hung up on him. Jeez, old man. Triple H was a prick <laughs> at that point, <laughs> it seems like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things, I think, with China was the sort of negative impact of our legacy is that she was very protective over our spot. I remember discussing that with Ross uh, when I was doing some reviews with him. Um, didn't really try and elevate the rest of the women's division around her. She was more interested in herself. And I probably think her going to the Jericho, her going to the top brass to say that about Jericho was more a move of self-preservation rather than any legitimate gripe uh, with Le Champion, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think she is still going out with Chris, with uh, she's still going out with Triple H in real life for now. And so like she's kinda she whispers to him and then Triple H is spending more time with Vince because of his feud. So then Triple H passes it on to Vince. And obviously Triple H and China are very much high on the totem pole at the moment, so mm-hmm. it does feel like the success is getting it kind of to China's head, but it, it, this is a decent match. I think this and the Survivor match are really solid matches between these two. Uh, it's weird, uh, at Survivor Series it felt heavily like the crowd wanted Jericho to win, but here it's more split. There are definitely more China fans than there were at Survivor Series. Mm-hmm. And it's something you don't really get to see much in a match is someone working over the thumb because China's dropping the ropes and Jericho does a drop kick to the thumb and China sells it like she's in pure agony. Yeah, and JR seemed amazed by it. He's like, I can't believe I'm saying this. It's a drop kick to the thumb. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, yeah, you're, you're right, Jim. I've, I've never seen that either. But this is this is the thing about this match that I like. I think it's the best uh, structured match that you're going to see in the card. Limb targeting comes into play. is brilliant uh, sort of heel babyface dynamics there. But also there's a lot of what I'd call false finishes in this match, you know, that would really fit with a modern sort of, what we'd associate with a more modern style of wrestling, not really what you'd associate with an actual style of wrestling. Um, So I appreciated that about it. I appreciated the clear sort of psychology that Jericho had. If Jericho's claiming that China's only as good as who she's in the ring with, that's fine. From my perspective here, she gave as good as she got in terms of her sort of technical wrestling ability. There were some really, really good moves that she executed to perfection. Um, like her selling, like you said, was was golden. Like I think oh, my initial instinct on China would that she would tr- would be that she would no sell anything to try and sort of preserve preserve her spot as as it was. But anytime I saw her, that that myth has been sort of dispelled in my head. Like she's a really really good performer and a surprisingly sympathetic baby face as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the first match to go like close to 10 minutes. It went 10 minutes, 22. And what's interesting in the Survivor Series match, Jericho was quite dominant there. And I think that was to set up China's retention to make it look more triumphant that she overcame Jericho. Whereas yeah. towards India, there's a lot of false finishes. Quite a few of them are China getting near falls on Jericho to kind of make it more surprising when Jericho won and kind of protect China to make it seem like it could have gone either way. Because like, she said Jericho in like, the exposed turnbuckle and that's a really close, like, near fall. But eventually, mm-hmm. Jericho gets on the wall of Jericho. China's so close to the ropes. Miss Kay's yelling at her, like, just reach out, just grab it. But eventually, China taps out. And Jericho wins his first of a record setting nine, or technically ten, if you count the IWGP one, uh, which Jericho seems to uh, <laughs> intercontinental championships for Jericho. And it looks like Jericho is finally... Like getting everything that he was promised because like he came in hot with the segment from the rock, but then he had to put away a lot of shit in between 
and now he's finally getting back on top. He said himself, when I wanted, when I dreamt about coming to the WWF, the title I wanted to win was the Intercontinental because that was the one all my favourites held. And it's, it feels like a big win. You know, it feels like a big win for Jericho. And that's partially due to the, the work of the two the two competitors involved. They, they really, really made it work here. And the way China sells the, the walls of Jericho is, is golden. You know, it, it really, really seems like it's it's leaving her in agony. Um, the only thing is the fucking Miss Kitty getting in the way of the fucking camera shot so we can't see China. Uh, annoyed the hell out of me because it mostly because it was hard, but secondly, it is a bit annoying when you can't, you know, see the performer's face because that stupid bitch is getting knocked <laughs> I'm going too hard on Miss Kitty now. Um, but you are right. Um, completely big win for Jericho. And I like the show of respect after the match as well. It's a really underrated feud ender rather than just someone wins and then you leave it at that. To have the two competitors sort of show a mutual sign of respect to each other is, is something that I really, really appreciated seeing. Yeah, because they have a backstage interview. This is quite interesting here because Jericho was interviewed by Mick Foley. He calls him Mitchell. <laughs> he, he likes to call people by the wrong names. He used to call Tony Chavani, Tony Skiavon. I think he still does it in AEW. Look, the Intercontinental Championship is around someone who deserves it. I'm going to restore class to this belt. And at one point, I, I got this, I don't know who did. I think a lot of people won't catch this because, as Jericho says, that the mic's been moved away from him and towards China, so it's kind of off mic. But Jericho, when China comes up to him, Jericho refers to himself as Le Champion. <laughs> I didn't hear it. I did not hear that. So you have caught you have caught that uh, where I did not see it. That is interesting that that was more than twenty years ago, you know, and it's led led to something that he's really went hot in on now. Because mm, a, f- a few weeks ago he was cutting a promo on a football field about China, and I thought to myself setting the seeds twenty years before stadium stampedes, like the the crooks of AEW Jericho can be traced back all the way to Y two J, all the way back to nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it, it all fits in, mate. It all fits in. <laughs> but yeah, they do have that show respect to him in China, like the shake hands and uh, that. I do think they actually are going to have some interaction going forward, but more as kind of allies rather than enemies going forward. And then, God's sake, the Rock and Salt connection. I like them, obviously, but go against the New Age Outlaws who have finally learned don't do your usual stick. Because you're meant to be heels now, which they took it took them more than a, two months to learn after they got back with DX, and this match went 16 minutes and 23 seconds. I was bored out of my mind. Yeah, I, sure think, I think it, I think it's just a curse of the outlaws because they had a match last month and that was boring as well. They seem to get the outlaws really long tag title matches, and it's just boring. It's a combination of heels dominating a match for a large stage can be boring, especially when it's sort of the tandem offense of the outlaws. But also, it just feels like a placeholder for the rock and mankind before they move on to bigger and better things. You know what I mean? It feels like a placeholder match. And as soon as I seen the interference of Bloody Alice Snow, I was like, right, okay. Do they just not want me to care about this match? You know what I mean? Like, no offence to Al Snow, but he has no business being involved in a programme with The Rock, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, because it's clear that The Rock and Triple H can't be in the title picture right now, so The Rock has to go back, reunite with, with Mick Foley 
off Triple H does his thing with the McMahons. And what happened was Mick Foley dissolved the partnership because he found a book that he personally signed to The Rock of his, uh, his autobiography thrown in the trash. And it was Al Snow who said, I've seen this book in the trash. And Mick Foley, if you haven't seen this promo, I'd recommend you go find it. Mick Foley just gives out to The Rock, calls him a selfish son of a bitch, even calls him Dwayne at one point, and wow. then the partnership breaks up. Al Snow and Mankind win the tag deals very briefly, drop them to the Outlaws. They had that match at Survivor Series, which was also boring as hell. And then The Rock reveals, I didn't throw your book in the trash, and then even reveals he actually read the book, which kind of cheers up Mick Foley, and they get back together. Whereas Man- Al Snow is jealous, he feels like his best friend's been taken away. And then he says that The Rock doesn't care about you, I do. I threw that book and reveals it was Al Snow that threw the book in the trash. He oh. said, because there were so many Al Snow jokes in the book. And he was like, I threw it in the book because it's a piece of garbage and it belongs there. <sighs> and Al-, Al Snow and Mick Foley actually had a match on SmackDown before this that had a hate package and everything for it. And he actually looked at it like, if they weren't so desperate to keep the rock away from the title, they, what they would be doing is the smart thing, which is having an Al Snow v Mick Foley match on this pay-per-view. But no, we got to sit through the fucking six, 15 minutes of the New Age Outlaws. <laughs> Only for it to in a bastard DQ. It's, it's one of those ones, I don't, like you say, I don't have much to say in this match, Scott, but to be honest with you, it reflects on something that I've been looking at. See, a lot of the time, rock matches can be boring, and the rock is great. The Rock's promos are fantastic. His character work is superb, but he does have a limited moveset when it comes to being in the ring, and it's kind of like what you said, Jericho and China. It kind of is the same with The Rock. Unless The Rock is in there with a really, really good dance partner, so to speak, I feel The Rock does get lost sometimes in sort of by-the-numbers paint-as-you-go wrestling matches. Mm-hmm. And, like, because usually the outlaws, they used to rely on Road Dog gets worked over for ages, hot tag to Billy Gunn, that was their rinse-repeat strategy, mm-hmm. but now I think they've learned we're heels now, we can't rely on that and Mick Foley, years of injuries are really catching up to him at this point, so basically it's a case of, Rock gets tagged in Rock gets worked over by the heels for the ages to build to the tag to Mick Foley yeah. and there are there are quite a few big like false finishes here, uh, and then Al Snow gets involved it looks like he's going to cost it, but then it looks like Mick Foley's going to fought them off. It looks like they're going to actually be able to thwart the interference of Al Snow. Al Snow then comes back and then hits the rock after rocks at a rock bottom and it causes a DQ and then the rock quickly disposes of Al after the match hitting with a rock bottom and a people's elbow to kind of just show how useless Al Snow actually is in the grand scheme of things. Mad Al. And you can't deny how over the rock is, you know what I mean? It was a nice feel good into the segment of the rock hitting these big moves and, and vanquishing the villains in the outset. But the fact that it was a DQ finish, the fact that they end they ended up not walking away with the title, but the rock's still sort of triumphant at the end, shows you how much of a placeholder this was uh, for both the rock and mankind. And, you know, just one of those things, move the outlaws onto something else, move the rock and sock onto something else, and just move Arsenal down the card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just move them on to something, something better than this. But what is not what is not that much better than this is the WWE Championship match that is coming up next. The Big Show defending the WWE title against the hardcore champion, the big boss man. Oh, what a story we have here. Uh, can I can I 
guess what I know of the story <laughs> up until this point. I believe that Big Show's father died and the boss man commandeered his his casket. Is that correct? And and drove it away uh, with the Big Show on top of the casket. That is part of the story. That is the, that's the one bit of the story that WWE likes to replay. Like, oh my, look at this wacky moment where Big Boss Man stole the casket. What else happened? Well, they took some creative license with this bloody video package that they show. Because this video package really highlights just how much of a bastard the Big Boss Man has been. Because this is the same year that Boss Man cooked and fed Al Snowy's dog. And they had that kid off from hell match. So what happened? Big Show... Is that Big Show's dad in real life has been dead for years at this point, so they're not really using real life for this. So this is all kayfabe here. So Big Show announces that he heard his dad has cancer and his dad's not got long left, and he feels like he's never made his dad proud. He's only got a limited time left. Um, uh, Big Boss Man has a, an issue with Big Show showing feelings for some reason and just mocks his dad, like, you got to move on. And then he pays off a fake cop to tell Big Show your dad's died, and then GTV reveals that that it was all an act, and they're mocking Big Show for crying. And then at one point, Big Show tries to crush Albert and Bossman in a with a giant dumpster. Uh, a moment that they actually try and say that it was after Survivor Season, the video package was actually a few weeks before. Was Big Show being interviewed in the trainers' room when uh, Albert and Bossman throw tear gas into the room? And then put on gas masks so they can beat up the big show. Aye, that <laughs> watching that in the video package that did look quite intense. I was feeling like, wow, that is that is a, a very a very bold strategy. Then the boss man takes out a family heirloom and watch that big show's dad inherited from his dad and was going to be passed to big show that he claims he stole from the boss the big show's dad's hospital room and then smashes it on an anvil with a hammer. And then we have the funeral for the big show's dad. He's actually dead this time. He's actually dead at this point. And then Bossman reads his condolence card with deepest regrets and tears that are soaked. I'm sorry to hear your dad finally croaked. He lives (laughs) a full life on his own terms. Soon he'll be buried and eaten by worms. But if I could have a son as stupid as you, I would wish for cancer so I would die too. Wow. so pick yourself up and get your life back on track because the old bastard's dead and he's never coming back. Lord above, man. <laughs> and then he, sums, then he sums it up at the end by yelling, and that's how I feel about the big show's daddy being dead. <laughs> and then he does the... The, uh, the go-home smackdown for Savarius has that big uh, coffin angle. And then on that Savarius big show is made a team with Kai and Tai in the blue mini against Bossman, Albert, Midian, and Viscera. So then Big Show decides, I don't want any partners, and just destroys his partners in the backstage area, comes out, squashes, and eliminates all three of Bossman's partners within a minute, and then chases Bossman off. And then later that night, he's announced as the replacement for, announces the replacement for Austin in the triple threat, and wins the title... And the crowd cheer, as I've mentioned multiple times, it's not because the big show won that they cheered. It's because it's because Triple H lost. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing that was severely lacking on this show. This is a very underwhelming WWF Championship match. 
Big Show, he's never remembered for any title reigns he's had. He's just not that type of character. His title reigns have always been a bit lackluster. In 1999, Big Boss Man should be nowhere near, nowhere near the WWF Championship scene, man. Honest to God, good character work, did what he could with it, but he's he's no there, he's no main event, you know what I mean? It gets worse, because the night after, sorry, on Raw, with the help of Prince Albert, Bossman beat The Rock to earn the title shot. Bossman beat The Rock in 1989 to earn the title shot. And then, they try to make it seem in this video package, like, this has been going for the last few weeks, continuing since Bossman became number one contender. It hasn't. Because there was a few weeks where they basically seemed to forget about this feud. Just so the big show could randomly have weekly title defences against big players like Caden, Chris Jericho, Viscera, the British Bulldog, and Hardcore Holly. That's the kind of people Big Show's been defending this title against. And then on the go home raw they decide to air the final bit of this video package where Bossman coerces Big Show's mum to finally reveal that Big Show is illegitimate. And I don't think Bossman or the WWF know what illegitimate means. Because that just basically means that his mum and dad weren't married when he was born. But Big Sh- but Bossman tries to say that Big Show's dad that died wasn't his real dad, and that Big Show doesn't know who his real dad is. And there's, the big, there's, there's a more iconic line for Big Bossman than him yelling down the camera, Paul White, you're a nasty bastard, and your mama said so. I'm stunned by your description of the build to this match. <laughs> this has went from me thinking it was revolving around the coffin incident to <laughs> multiple things that I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around. And the weird thing about it, Scott, is that it resulted in, quite frankly, the most underwhelming match of the night. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think anyone's ever actually... Are you, I don't think anyone's actually made this connection here. This is the same year where Bossman had that match with Undertaker where he got hung. And somehow, it's only in the months following that they started becoming such a, a evil for the sake of evil. He's got their evil levels of evil. He, as well as Wayland Smithers once said, he's crossed the line from everyday villainy to cartoonish supervillainy. And I think somehow Bossman legit died when he got hung and then a demon possessed his body and that demon can only feed on just causing misery to others. It's a, it's a theory that should be explored uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> I mean, you do a show on ESSR called Conspiracy Theories. There's a theory for you. I will, I will be looking into it, mate. I will be looking into <laughs> it. I'm writing it down in my notes right now as we speak. But yeah, all of this stuff has happened. And one thing we just wanted for the last like, almost two months is basically Big Show to murder the boss man. That's all we want. <laughs> this match... I explained you all that, all these terrible things that the boss man has done. This is for the WWF title. Three minutes and 16 seconds. <laughs> yeah, it goes 316 because 316 is what we're missing right now because there's no Austin. Because yeah. he was. Three fucking minutes. It's oh. obscene. It's, uh, it's utterly obscene. It's not a WWF title match. It's a throwaway match and a pay-per-view. It's it's utterly nothing. The only interesting thing is Albert getting put through the announce table, which, good for him. You know, go and tell the performance trainer, uh, centre trainees how to take that bump, mate. You know what I mean? Uh, big Matt Bloom there doing the job. But honestly, mate, there's nothing to talk about with this one. 
outside of that. Big Show beats Boss Man, as you'd expect him to, and everyone moves on with their lives. Well, I, it was so bad that I put it down my notes. Big Show's hair makes him look like Bill Bailey. <laughs> Bill Bailey, wrong. Big Show. <laughs> You're definitely not wrong with that one. That's a very apt comparison. <laughs> but, yeah, Big Show comes out. Yeah, he said, puts Albert through the table, manhandles Boss Man. Boss Man does manage to kind of look like he briefly knocked Big Show out on the outside. This match goes three minutes and still gets boring chance. Because yeah. Boss Man takes too long getting Big Show back in the ring because he's basically dead weight. Big mm. Show does a kip up. Chokes, one chokes land to Boss Man. But doesn't even look that good and pins him. You should have been you should have just picked him up, chokes land him again and again. He should have chokes land Boss Man until he put him through the ring. That's yeah. what this feud deserved. Because the next match, the next match doesn't even does he even bloody go more? Does he even spend that much time in the ring? So it wouldn't matter if you put a big hole in the middle of the ring. <laughs> and like you said, that would be much more effective. I did. I do have to say the kip up was impressive because mm-hmm. it's something that I haven't seen from Big Show uh, very much. Because my introduction to Big Show, he was more. It was he had more in his frame, shall we say? He was more more of a lumbering individual than he was here. So to see him be athletic enough to to do a kip up it was something that I was very very impressed with. I'm just watching this this match and just remembering it now. And I remember seeing the news earlier on that Big Show's Netflix series got cancelled and actually watching this match, I'm kind of glad. Fuck you and your Netflix show, you prick. <laughs> Rest in peace to the Big Show show, the stupidest name in television. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think the big thing about why Big Show didn't get much time on TV as champion and why this match didn't get much time on the pay-per-view, not just because people didn't care about it, it's because the company doesn't care about it. Because we need to dedicate more time with Triple H versus Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon taking on Triple H in a no holds bar match. 28 minutes. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Look, at, it's, it's more than the Rock and Sock match and Chris Jericho versus China combined. In fact, it's more than it's more than the Rock and Sock and the tag team match combined, which were the two longest running uh, matches outside of that main event so this match went on longer than <laughs> easily any other match in the show the, the majority of the undercard went like 6 or 5 minutes you can yes. put the majority of the undercard matches run times together and still you'd have to do a few of them to add up to this match's length you it's gave insane. the women, you gave Ivory and Jacqueline 2 minutes and 57 seconds but this went 28 minutes and it, it really doesn't need it. Like positives about this one, it's good hardcore action. There's some there's some good spots. I like the trash can stuff uh, with Vince and, and Hunter. They use the environment well with the tanks and stuff like that. Um, Vince takes a really really nasty bump at one point uh, into the sort of bunker area, which is really really cool to see. And I think he's he's no spring chicken even at this time. So it's it's really impressive to, to see him take that bump. Vince is fifty three here. It's insane. That's insane when you look back at it, mate. Insane. And also how nimble he is to avoid the car spot as well. <laughs> that was terrifying. Before we talk about the match, we need to talk about the build here. Because yeah. this is this is a phrase you're not going to hear much outside of this podcast. It's a phrase that I'm going to say here. Let's talk about Test. <laughs> because we have to talk about Test. Ah, Test. 
Um, Scott, I'll be honest, I don't have much to say about Tess. Tess was engaged to Stephanie. He got engaged to Stephanie shortly after SummerSlam, where at SummerSlam he had one of the best matches of his career against Shane McMahon in the Lover or Lever match, where he earned basically Shane's blessing. He continued dating Stephanie. And then that's it. It seems like he's on top of the world. He's involved in the McMahon's, surely. Big main event push for this young up-and-comer test. He doesn't get on armor. He's not on Unforgiven. He doesn't get on Rebellion, even though it's just a UK pay-per-view. At, at Rebellion, Bulldog angry throws a bin that hits Stephanie in the head, giving her amnesia. She forgets who Test is. And <laughs> Test doesn't even get to revenge Stephanie's injuries at No Mercy against Bulldog because they randomly put Bulldog against The Rock for no reason. And then Test gets a feud with Bulldog or the next couple of weeks on Raw after No Mercy loses both matches against Bulldog thanks to the Mean Street Posse. <laughs> Austin gets taken out and Vince is in his office surrounded by his family and this big, near seven foot blonde and he's a late 20s guy up and comer and doesn't think to put this guy in the main event against Triple H and The Rock. Decides to just get the big show for some reason. Still trying to make up that big money contract worth it. Yeah. And Tess has just been made to look like an absolute twat, especially the last few weeks. He got kidnapped by DX randomly and got his nose repeatedly broken. Triple H marries Stephanie while she's passed out. And instead of Tess hunting Triple H and every member of DX down and murdering each and every one of them, it should be Tess in them as much because he has more he has more reason to hate Triple H than Vince, I think. Mm-hmm. Instead, the last two weeks of SmackDown, Tess showed up at the arena, the SmackDown after the wedding basically said, Stephanie, I don't know how to feel, and wanders off. Even Stephanie feel like she's messed up when it's not her fault. Yeah. And, then, and then the go-home smackdown, he tells Stephanie he wants to break up, and then loses to X-Pac clean. He, and he's the, dead. He's and more, than that, more than that, like, Sunday night heat before this, he loses to Al Snow. I was, and I was going to say, I'll save him at this point, he loses to Also, Also, <laughs> who got dispatched easily by the Rock and Sock earlier on. <laughs> when you when you lay it on the table like that, yes, poor test. But <laughs> at the same time, I don't think we'd be talking about this match um, and remembering certain iconic moments from this match as fondly had it not been Triple H versus Vince McMahon. You know what I'm saying? Because Test's legacy... In hindsight, just he, he wasn't there. There was something missing with Test and his presentation and his character and his delivery. So, yes, it's a shame for him, but I'm happy that it ended up being Triple H versus Vince McMahon in, this, in the end because that's just a more iconic match on paper. Do you know there's a Twitter account out there called Is Test Still Dead? <laughs> and, every day, and every day it just tweets out, yes. And then on April Fool, every April Fool, he tweets out, no. That, that, that's what this legacy is. A Twitter account giving you daily updates that he's still dead. I... <laughs> People really irritate me sometimes. <laughs> but, but Vince, is weird to think, Vince has spent the last three or four months as a face ever since he came back to the company he had that match with, with Triple H on the fourth ever episode of SmackDown where, mm. thanks to Austin, Vince McMahon won the WWF title from Triple H. 
only to vacate it the following Raw. And basically Vince was immediately a face. And basically he's been favouring people like Austin and going against people like Triple H. So obviously Vince and Triple H have hated each other for quite a while. But then obviously Vince got involved. He was the guest referee at Survivor Series. And obviously thinking that Triple H had taken out Austin basically helped Big Show win. And that really really ramped up the, the feud. Triple H has been trying to get at Vince at every turn, including marrying Stephanie. And we've made a running joke here. They keep mentioning, oh, it's going to get personal. It will get personal. Please don't make this personal. Oh, how much per- more personal can this feud get? Like, <laughs> that is the tagline this feud. Vince versus Triple H, this time it's personal. It is personal. <laughs> I and didn't notice that in the video package, actually. I was, I was going to make a joke about it, but it's, it's quite hilarious. <laughs> and then the big situation also is in this match that Triple H, if he wins, he will stay married to Stephanie and will be guaranteed a shot at the WWF title. Mm. And Vince, if he wins, the marriage with Stephanie is annulled. Now, I explained that to you in 10 seconds. We had a 15-minute segment on Raw to get to that stipulation. And then we had another 10 or 15-minute contract signing on Raw, like on SmackDown, which ended in Shane getting thrown off the stage by Triple H. And that's setting the wheels in motion for Shane to start taking big bumps to yeah. earn his dad's affection. And also, Trump DX got a temporary order of protection against Vince, saying that Vince, up until Armageddon, couldn't come within 50 feet of them because Vince rammed into a limousine and tried to batter them all with a baseball bat in the build <laughs> to them. I like that actually watching that in the video package I thought that was quite funny like he looked like the most dad like guy of all time just like with a baseball bat I was like yes I like that aesthetic someone just someone just cuts someone should just take that clip in isolation of Vince randomly running his car into the limbo and just like ah it's like what happens when you cut your dad off in rush hour traffic just <laughs> ah <laughs> and I believe it's the first time it's ever happened but uh Triple H comes out with a sledgehammer for the first time. Mm. And also, as part of the stipulation, Stephanie was given a, a road dog's wedding gift to Triple H with a front row ticket for Armageddon for Stephanie so she could watch Triple H beat up Vince. Mm. And then there's a guy behind her in a rock t-shirt who's definitely not a security guard. He's a, just a, a regular-looking fan who's standing up and nodding at, at mm. Stephanie McMahon while looking really jacked. He's definitely not a security guard at all. Definitely not. No, no. That would be preposterous to propose, Scott. I don't even know why you're putting such conspiracy theories out there into the world. I'm sorry. I'm still in your sick there for your show. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> One of the first spots is Triple H getting powder thrown in his eyes to give Vince an advantage. And that's mm. not what... Years of picking foreign heels is uh, giving Vince ideas. I thought that was actually really effective, like you say, as a as a trope t- typically associated with like the likes of Mr. Fuji and all that jazz. Um, but going into the match, the, the problem you have is Triple H, professional wrestler, world champion material, Vince McMahon, like, as you said, 50-odd years old, <laughs> owner of the company, you know, so you needed something to even the odds, so to speak, to make it realistic that Vince could take control even for a small amount of time. So I actually really did enjoy that spot in the, the first bit of the match. And JR in particular does a good job of selling the fact throughout the match Triple H doesn't have his full vision, can't quite see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they brought the crowd, and I'm pretty sure Triple H normally just steals someone's water to put it in his eyes to wash out the powder, mm. like to make sure he can properly see. And one of the funniest spots here was uh, Mankind randomly came out to gift 
a, a shopping trolley full of weapons to Vince he could use that. against Triple H. I love that so much, but there were so many weapons in there I wish you'd used, like the, the wet floor sign. I was like, <laughs> we need to see a wet floor sign spot in wrestling, you know what I mean? This is this is what we need, all these innovative things that, that Mankind brought out there. And I thought that was good, and it solidified because I wasn't sure the sort of clear heel-face dynamics going in. So the fact that Mankind was coming out and gifting that to Vince, I was like, okay, Vince is the, the definite baby face in this match, which was weird to adapt to, but it was good that moment for me, just watching it out of context. Yeah, this is very much a brawl. Like I said, they don't even spend that much time in the ring. They're, they go through the crowd, they come back, they brawl around ringside. They get the weapons, they brawl up to the brawl up to the stage area, they go outside. Like you said, there's a, that spot where Triple H just disappears and then just tries to run over Vince McMahon. And what's so ironic is that when they were told, when they got accused of uh, running over DX, DX got accused of... Uh, attacking Stone Cold and running him over. They're like, no, that's not something we do. We'd never go that far. But then Vince has apparently made this so personal. Triple H is now willing to cross the line and try and run for Vince McMahon. And it's, like I said, like Vince is so quick because it looked so dangerous that spot. Like mm-hmm. at first, I thought Vince had actually been run over by the car, and I was terrified. But you watch the replay, and he managed to like skin the cat almost through the guardrails. I was like, fair play to Vince, nimble creature right there. What's funny is how they incorporated the set into this. Like Triple H brings up a sandbag from like the weird like barracks area, and literally, quite literally, sandbagged Vince in this match. He used a shopping trolley. There's a prop machine gun that gets spun around and hits somebody in the face, and then Vince takes that spot into the weird dugout area. Then it's I can't remember what he's hit with, but it doesn't look that much that heavy. And mm-hmm. then when Vince emerges. From that weird dugout area, Vince Triple H takes some time to go taunt Stephanie, and then Vince emerges. Oh, they're suddenly bleeding, so I guess it was giving them time to bleed. But like mm-hmm. everything, all the weapons, everything they dump in this point, and this is where you have the bleeding spot. Because don't get me wrong, Vince can Vince and Triple H can bleed for anybody. Like they're them and like Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels, they love it. They love yeah. any chance opportunity to bleed in a match. But yeah. like you just feel like this is the moment you chose to bleed on. It's one of those ones where wrestling always defies logic like that, especially in these hardcore matches. You're like, what is the, what's the thing that's going to bust me open? You know, what's the thing that's going to finally, finally make me bleed? Um, and it was just like you say, it's just taking advantage of the opportunity. That bunker, you're able to hide Vince's face. Uh, you're able to hide what he's doing. So it's just the safest place to do it, I suppose. You know what I mean? He can take his sweet time, make sure he's no, no cutting himself too bad at Guerrero style. You know what I mean? So quite good. I mean, Triple, Vince apparently had his own uh, girl style moment at uh, Armageddon 03, I think it was. I think he cut himself a bit too deep and he bled for that entire match with The Undertaker, the uh, the Buried Alive match, and it, it looked ugly. Yeah. So, you know, it can go right or wrong. But it does look like Vince has Triple H exactly where he wants him at the end. He's got Triple H down after the Lobo. He picks up the sledgehammer. He's going to hit him with it. Triple H is begging off. And then Stephanie comes in. And like, no, I want to hit Triple H. I want to get him back for everything he's done. And then this, they take too long. Triple H gets the sledgehammer and hits, triple, hits Vince with the sledgehammer. Doesn't even hit him with the pedigree. He uses the sledgehammer for the win. And like I said, 28 minutes. Triple H finally beats Vince. There was a point where earlier on after he was taunting Stephanie on the mic, uh, he had Vince stumbling down the ramp. And he's yelling, God damn it, Vince, stay down. Just punches him some more. But yeah, Triple H gets the win 
and then Stephanie comes to attend to her dad. It looks like Triple H is going to hit Stephanie, and you're like, oh, good God, don't you dare hit her with that sledgehammer. And then Stephanie turns around. And I, I was sure, maybe it's a Mandela effect, I was certain in my brain I remember this, this differently. I remembered Stephanie getting physically involved, like she attacked her dad in the match to help Triple H win, and then they got together. But no, it's the Stephanie kind of stares at Triple H for a while, and then they both smile, and then they hug, and it's revealed Stephanie has been in on it the whole time. Stephanie and Triple H are together. The McMahon-Helmsley era is beginning, and Vince is so out of it. They even acknowledge in contrary. I don't even think Vince realises what his baby girl has done. She's aligned herself with Triple H, and Vince has no idea. He's so out of it. Yeah, and I remember that as well. It probably could be maybe WWE playing video packages back. I don't know. I remember him giving Vince a low blow, um, kicking him in the nuts. That's what that's what I remember. So looking back, but maybe that happens on a future Raw or something like that. Yeah, the finish to this match, iconic. Um, this is the better. It's the start of the the McMahon Helmsley regime, as it's known. It's sort of its set era in WWE. And I really like it, man, because you have Stephanie, and up until this point, she's sort of just the sort, she's the daughter of Vince. You know, she can do no wrong. She's the she's the million dollar princess. But then, it's that smile, and it's in that smile that she gives Triple H that you see the seeds of the Stephanie man we come to know today. And having been a guy who sat through the entire Authority era, the Authority storyline, it was actually it was weirdly pleasant to see where it all begun and the sort of dynamics starting even in that very first night, pairing the two of them on screen. I thought it was done really well. It also made sense, logically. Stephanie didn't get involved on Triple H's behalf until the very last possible second, where she saw, oh, he's in real, real trouble here of losing this. So gets herself involved and cleverly does it in a way where it doesn't look as though she's necessarily helping Triple H out, when in actual fact she's basically just handing him back the sledgehammer deliberately. You know, so... Mm -hmm. Very, very well done. Really good execution of it. And it's one of these things, these pay-per-view endings we're starting to see a bit more of um, in WWE today. Obviously, we're just off a of SummerSlam. Roman Reigns it came back in that event. Um, and it was a big sort of, oh, he's back. He's just attacked the Fiend, attacked Roman, what's going on? We had payback with Roman Reigns signing the contract uh, late into the match and joining it and winning. And it's those cliffhanger moments in the pay-per-views that make people tune in to Monday Night Raw the next night or Friday Night Smackdown later in the week. That's what the Attitude Era did really well. And despite this show having really, really weak matches, if I know myself, if I was watching back at the time as a fan, I'd be tuning in to the next show just because of that cliffhanger ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, some really crap stuff in like, the middle of the card, but like it ended in a big way in a moment that made you way tune in to what what's going to happen on the next night on Raw, and I believe when you actually think about it, you think of oh Stephanie being like a an absolute bastard alongside Triple H, but actually I believe the next night on Raw she explains herself in a way that actually makes sense because obviously this is the same year '99 where Vince did the whole it's me Austin, it was me all along. He was the higher power, and then in part of that he orchestrated the kidnapping of Stephanie, yeah, and yeah. Stephanie basically explains basically. Do you think I just forget that my own father had the Undertaker kidnap me and try and marry me against my will? So basically she did this whole thing with Triple H. Like she wasn't a pawn used by Triple H. She was a big part of it. She was a, she was one of the masterminds. She was involved in it the whole time. Mm. And she basically did this to get back at Vince. And when you actually think about it, you realise, yeah, logically, yeah, I'd, I'd see why Stephanie would be angry at her father. 
Mm. And also, it really made Steffi look actually intelligent for mm-hmm. a character because well, before this, she'd just been like the like really goody two shoes father, sorry, daughter of Vince who could do no wrong, but now she's a proper full fledged character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it works as well. And I like that. That's always been a thing about the Stephanie character is you, the, her intelligence comes across. You can. You understand and you believe that she would be one step ahead because of things like this, because she gives really realistic and good justifications for her actions. So it doesn't surprise me you saying that, that that's what she came and said in Raw the next night. And also, the best villains are the ones we understand. And to have an actual good uh, reason for turning heel does help a heel turn. So fair play to WWE for capitalising on uh, earlier events in the turn of Miss Stephanie McMahon at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, that's been a long road to get here, but we've finally come to the end of, of Armageddon 1999. Mm-hmm. But, David, something I'm going to ask you, I asked all my guest co-hosts, where, what rating would you give this between a thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down? And is there one thing on this show that you would actually recommend people go back and watch? Hmm. I'm going to have to say thumbs middle because there were really, really good moments. Um, we've discussed Kane, X-Pac, we've discussed the main event, but there was other things that just sort of let it down that were middle of the road. And like you say, it suffers from the lack of Austin. It suffers from trying to adapt to his absence. Um, one thing that I would recommend going back and checking out was the Chris Jericho-China match. Uh, for me, it's my favourite match in the card. And if you're a modern fan of wrestling, but like me, you haven't quite seen everything in the Attitude Era. I feel that's a good sort of entry-level match because it's a modern style of wrestling or what we'd associate with a modern style of wrestling back in the Attitude Era with two phenomenal characters in Jericho and China. So that would be my recommendation to go back and watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'd recommend probably the Kane match and possibly yeah. possibly the main event if you, like, like, if you want to go back and see where the beginning of the, of the authority really began I'd say a thumbs middle too because this suffers from what a lot of uh, BE pay-per-views, especially ones in December suffer from mm-hmm. and that it's very much end of year a lot of storylines kind of that we're kind of stuck with that we need to wrap up or continue and we're just really waiting to start a new fresh, start a new, get to the Rumble, which the Rumble 2000 is what I fondly remember as one of the best pay-per-views the WAF has ever done. Yeah. So we're just, we're just waiting to get to that. And so, but yeah, I'd say sometimes it was more than fair. Well, David, I, you, you, you've guest appeared again on a Saturday Draft Live recently. You're, I've invited you here. That's now two podcasts I've invited you on. I expect my invitation to First Time Films is in the post somewhere. I. Scott, we will get things sorted out with you, perhaps Hot Rod, perhaps not, we will see where this journey takes us, but I expect it to happen in the not too distant future Very good, but uh, if people wanted to keep up with you David and all the stuff that's going on with things like first time films or the conspiracy theories on ESSR, where would they be able to keep up with that? Yeah, we'll go to my Twitter feed, you'll find me at davidcampbell55 on Twitter um, I'll be sharing all my podcasts there. Follow First Time Films um, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and yeah, you can hear me everywhere. You know, you can hear me all around the podcast world. So it's good, good to uh, be back with you, Scott, today. And thank you very much for having me. Hey, it's been, been an honour having you on. 
taking this this little trip to Armageddon with me. Uh, you can keep up with everything going on here at Rogue Pines at Rogue underscore Pines on Twitter and Instagram. Our back catalogue of all the other episodes of this Rogue Retro series, all the other guest hosts like Jack and that, that I've had on the last few weeks. Uh, all the quizzes that we've had. We've got the Banter Munich podcast on all things football. I don't I don't keep up with it, but these guys seem to be pumping out a new podcast every other fucking day. <laughs> I appeared on Reese's brand new revolutionary series, Room 501, uh, earlier this week. You know, it's definitely not like Room 101 at all. It's a completely new, fresh concept. You can go <laughs> and you can hear the kind of things that really annoy me, and you can hear my hill to die on in regards to something I really dislike that Reese kept disagreeing with me on. Uh, you can follow me at Scott McLeod1996. You can keep up with the stuff that me and David do with Eat Sleep Suplex Retreat at Suplex Retreat on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and you can you can find them on the same Android podcast that you find Rogue Opinions on that's Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Android, everywhere you get your podcast but David uh, I was looking forward to having this podcast and there's some scheduling issues getting us together but I think it was well worth the wait my friend well worth the wait mate and thank you very much once again for having me I will see you down the, the road once again especially competing in the draft this season see how things go <laughs> we, we will see you'll have to join in Saturday Draft Live people if you want to hear about that but until then we'll see you next time as we continue the retro journey all the way to the Royal Rumble we'll see you next time we're a moment